Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. There are fights in the public high schools in Houston. In New Orleans, a big round of layoffs at Tulane University. Hurricane Katrina is disrupting the education of tens of thousands of young people. We'll speak with the president of Tulane in a few minutes. First up, the situation in Houston, where tensions between local students and evacuees from New Orleans have been building for weeks. Those tensions boiled over on Wednesday at Westbury High School. There was a brawl, and more than two dozen students were arrested. Houston took in more students from New Orleans than any district outside Louisiana. And as NPR's Claudio Sanchez reports, the schools there are struggling to help them fit in. Westbury High School was quiet this morning. There were 14 police officers, including two canine units, two ministers, and seven extra counselors, which is just fine, says 16-year-old Daniel Thomas, an 11th grader. They're not letting students go out in the hallways. You can't go to the restroom. You can't go to your locker or nothing, and they, they got dogs checking lockers and stuff. Now, I feel safe. I feel safe. Parents seem relieved, too, but Kathy Merrickan and Michelle Hawkins are still upset about Wednesday's fight. Both have daughters at Westbury High. When she called me, when it happened, it scared me to death. And I work on the other side of town, and I had to call my husband, and he came in and got her. And it, it's really scary. These kids are going to kill each other, you know? I'm afraid for my child to come here. I was afraid to bring her back yesterday. According to the school district, Wednesday's fight started during lunch in the cafeteria. Two groups of girls exchanged insults, followed by kicking and punching. Quickly, the fight spread to other areas. News Chopper 2 was over Westbury High School as a group of students attacked one of their classmates. Everybody was getting uh, pushed. On at least one local TV newscast, you could see several students beating someone on the ground. Most of the school's 2,500 students were locked inside their classrooms during the fight. Within the hour, Houston City Police had things under control. Police arrested 27 students. 12 were local kids. 15 were from New Orleans. All were charged with a misdemeanor for rioting. One student who refused to be handcuffed was charged with assaulting an officer. No weapons were involved. No one went to the hospital. Houston school officials today declined to speak on tape to NPR about the incident, but in an email, spokesman Terry Abbott pointed out that there had been few incidents and discipline problems throughout the district were down. At Westbury High, though, the problems had gotten so bad, the principal, Eric Coleman, last week met with parents, students, and teachers to talk about the confrontations between students to no avail. 
There have been at least 12 fights involving Katrina evacuees in the Houston public schools. The fight at Westbury was the biggest to date, although it wasn't nearly as vicious as the one back in mid-September at Jesse Jones High School. Three students there were hospitalized. At Jones High School, the insults went back and forth for days, according to the teachers, and then one of ours threw a Coke can, and the fight was on. Gail Fallon heads the Houston Federation of Teachers. We're seeing this all over the district. Our students and their students are are like oil and water on the high school level. It is a ticking time bomb. Houston is not alone. There have been fights in the Dallas public schools and in Conroe, Texas, a small school system just north of Houston. One huge problem for Houston, though, says Fallon, is that the district took in so many kids from New Orleans, over 5,000. Westbury High, for example, has 300, and nobody at any of the receiving schools really knew who they were. They arrived with no records, no information about their schoolwork, or if they had been discipline problems. One of the things that we've heard from some of the principals is that uh, this is the first time they've dealt with kids who have absolutely no fear. Which is not to say that the kids from New Orleans are all troublemakers, says Fallon, but it's clear that many haven't adjusted well and some are really angry. A lot of this anger probably has to do with the trauma they've gone through. Some of these kids need services that far exceed anything that a school district is capable of giving them. I would be surprised if this was the last time this happened. Today, students at Westbury High began taking their finals, with Christmas break only a week away. But teachers say they're dreading the likelihood of more fights when they come back next year. Claudia Sanchez, NPR News. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, October 9th, 2015. So I have been told this is our sixth study session on Gary Riblin, Katrina after the flood. Uh, we're picking up on chapter 13. Chapter 13, the audio segment you heard at the beginning of the broadcast, uh, that was from December of 2005. So uh, roughly that about three months after the storm, four months after the storm, uh, just hearing how this impacted children. Uh, that's something I think a lot of people <clears throat> uh, in this event with so many horrors and tragedies, I think, for a lot of people, it's difficult to even imagine being a high school student or middle school student. I think they had done one week of the school year and then bang, this hits. Uh, you had some people, they were looking forward to homecoming and all the good stuff they were going to do for their senior year. And now I'm displaced. I'm 200 miles from home, a thousand miles from home and going to school uh, with random folks who view me as a potential rapist and looter from Louisiana. Hmm. With that, we will get started. First audio segment, context of white supremacy, Katrina, after the flood, chapter 13. Chapter 13, Isle of Denial. Cassandra Wall and her sisters were still camped out at the Microtel in Baton Rouge. Various nieces and nephews migrated there, along with cousins and assorted significant others. Cassandra said 
we basically had our own floor within a few weeks. Among them, they had four dogs and two cats. Petit had what she called her pantry. The dresser drawers of spices, red beans, and other dry goods. Cassandra's mother had a small refrigerator in her room and a hot plate. Between them, they were good for at least a few home-cooked meals a week. A local church was still bringing food each evening to evacuees stuck at the microtel, and Monday nights, after their weekly meeting, the family would treat themselves to a meal at the Applebee's down the street. Cassandra was starting to like Baton Rouge, or at least she wasn't disliking it as much as her sister's. You'd only have to mention their adopted town to Petit to get a lecture on proper hospitality. They have a real attitude toward us, she would say. We're these bad people who are going to destroy their community. We keep these crazy hours. No one sleeps. Over a Big Mac one night, Petit caught an unvarnished glimpse of the hostility when she overheard the workers complaining about the people from New Orleans. The McDonald's workers were even blaming the evacuees for the longer hours they were asked to work. I'm sorry if our flood inconvenienced you, she told them. It didn't help her view of Baton Rouge that it had taken so long to find a place where her son Garrett could attend school. They're telling me, wait till you're called. But I've got my kid running around at the microtel, Petit said. Of course I'm calling them. Not until the second half of October did they find a spot for him. Cassandra defended Baton Rouge when she was with her sisters. Think of the church ladies still bringing food to the microtel months after Katrina, she said. Think about the stresses the flooding was causing in their adopted city. Baton Rouge's population didn't quite double post-Katrina, as the locals thought, but there were an extra 100,000 people living in a city home to 228,000 prior to the storm. The traffic was horrendous and the wait for everything longer in the grocery store checkout line at a favorite restaurant. The schools might have moved slower than Petit would have liked, but the academic year had already started when thousands of students arrived in need of a spot. Yet a feeling of unwelcome wasn't just in the heads of Cassandra's sisters. A contingent of 55 Michigan state troopers had volunteered to help in the Gulf Coast after Katrina. They were asked to assist the police in Baton Rouge, where multiple officers said they were under orders, make life unpleasant for New Orleans evacuees so that they will relocate elsewhere. One trooper quoted a local cop's reference to blacks as animals who needed to be beaten down. As a thank you gift, another trooper said he was invited to beat down a man in custody. A small squadron of state troopers from New Mexico, also assigned to Baton Rouge, told a similar story. 
a complaint the New Mexico commander filed with the city stated that his people had witnessed illegal searches, physical abuse, and other behavior that a top officer summed up as racially motivated. Petit was also hearing it from Garrett, her youngest, for whom the storm's timing had seemed especially cruel. When Katrina hit, he had just completed his first week as an upperclassman at St. Augustine, a storied all-boys Catholic school in town that counted the city's second African-American mayor and other local African-American luminaries as graduates. Now he was attending some anonymous school in Baton Rouge where his grades started to slip. That November, officials from St. Augustine, which had taken on five feet of water, teamed up with St. Mary's Academy, an all-girls Catholic school that had also flooded. Both schools were partnering with Xavier Prep, the all-girls school that Garrett's mother and his aunts had attended, to open a school on Xavier Prep's campus uptown, which had not flooded. The combined school would include faculty and students from St. Mary, St. Augustine, and Xavier Prep, and be called the Max. After that, it was the Max, the Max, the Max, Petit said. Their mother, Daisy Wall, who was also adamant about getting home to New Orleans. Pushing 75, she had been diagnosed with cancer before the storm. The family home in Central City, on the edge of Uptown, had suffered modest roof damage but no flooding. She wanted to sleep in her own bed. My mom wanted to come back, Petit said. My son wanted to come back. I was coming back. It was too soon to think about moving back to New Orleans East. Entergy wasn't even giving a date for when it might restore power to the neighborhood. But they had the family home and also a small uptown rental property her mother owned. Thanksgiving at a Baton Rouge restaurant had been cheesy, Petit declared, and told her sisters, I promise you a better Christmas. The next day, Petit began making daily trips to New Orleans to work on her mother's house and eventually the rental. By January 1, she had given up their room at the Microtel. The pressure on Cassandra to move back to New Orleans was growing. The Friday after Thanksgiving was also the day that Cousin Robin moved back to the city. She earned a good living working as a paralegal for a local litigator who put her back to work four weeks after Katrina. The room at the Microtel was free, courtesy of FEMA, but the commute to and from New Orleans was brutal. She found a condo for rent in the warehouse district near work. The price was exorbitant for New Orleans, $1,250 a month for a small one-bedroom, but it was a nice place conveniently located and the best she could find in a city with an acute housing shortage. A week later, Tanji, who worked as an administrator at the University of New Orleans, rented a unit just down the hall. The university had lost use of its engineering building and also a dorm, but its administrative offices were reopening as of December 1. In retrospect, the sisters 
and their cousin admit that they may have ganged up on Cassandra. But with three-fifths of them back in New Orleans, the center of gravity was shifting back home. They wanted their sister back with them in New Orleans. Cassandra spoke on behalf of herself and her husband, who worked as a medical technician. We can't go back, Cassandra told them. There's no hospitals. There aren't the schools. There's no shopping. They responded by throwing back at her the words she had said from the podium at their Monday night meetings, which they discontinued now that several of them were back in the city. Cassandra reminded them that while at least a couple of them had jobs bringing them back to New Orleans, she was a tutor without clients in a city devoid of school-aged children. Her husband had secured work at a Baton Rouge hospital. It was a step down after heading the cardiovascular testing unit at a New Orleans hospital, but Cassandra was relieved he had found any job. There was also their son, Brandon, to consider. He had started the seventh grade in New Orleans, and he was adjusting to the middle school they had found for him in Baton Rouge. What sense would it make to move him into a third school midway through the academic year? She thought about all the unknowns of life back in New Orleans. Would they have adequate flood protection? What kind of insurance settlement might they receive? Moving forward, would insurance companies even write policies in parts of New Orleans? They moved back and said they figure it out, she said of her sisters. That's the way they are. I need to see the big picture before I leap. People called that part of New Orleans built along the high ground that had remained mostly dry when the rest of the city flooded the sliver by the river. Uptown, the French Quarter, the Marginee, and Algiers on the West Bank. By the time Petit, Robin, and Tangi moved back to the city, an estimated 25,000 people were living in this area, which others called the Isle of Denial. It was anyone's guess what portions of the Sliver's residents had lived in New Orleans prior to Katrina and were not newcomers there to help with the recovery. A degree of normalcy was returning to this part of the city. Every day seemed to bring another mini-miracle. Mail service resumed in early October and UPS trucks started delivering packages around the same time. The city council was again meeting in its regular chambers. It had held its first two meetings after Katrina at the airport. A movie theater reopened. A grocery store carried fresh produce. The city's once robust restaurant scene was springing back to life, one establishment at a time. Bill Hines baffled his law partners in Baton Rouge when in October he announced that he was giving up his borrowed room in a colleague's air-conditioned home to move back to a flood-damaged home still under repair in a town with few amenities. Yet that also meant he was back in New Orleans the day Red Fish, one of the city's more popular seafood restaurants, reopened. Red Fish offered a one-item menu that night. Cheeseburgers and fries served on styrofoam plates. The drink choice was beer 
or bottled water. Yet, the small taste of the familiar, Heinz said, left him crying with joy. Yet more common were the moments that left people in tears of frustration. Dry parts of town experienced frequent power outages in an overstressed system. Garbage pickup had resumed, but New Orleans often looked as if the city were in the third week of a sanitation workers' strike. Sure, UPS's familiar brown trucks were back, but the delivery company's main facility in the area had flooded, and now its entire New Orleans operation was being run out of a trailer in the western suburbs. And UPS driver James Connerly, who worked a small section of the central business district before the flood, was now covering almost the entire area by himself. Two months after Katrina, one-third of the city's office high-rises were still shuttered, Connerly estimated, and I'd say there's only two or three buildings at least 50% occupied. The U.S. Postal Service may have resumed deliveries, but the mail would show up for three days running, and then there'd be nothing for a week. The reminders that New Orleans was still broken were constant. In normal times, the port of New Orleans ranked as the fifth busiest in the United States, yet more than two months after Katrina, it was still at only 30% of its normal capacity. The Saints were playing in another city, as were the Hornets, the city's NBA team. The Sugar Bowl would be played outside New Orleans for the first time in 70 years. The city got a boost at the end of October when the American Library Association announced its next annual convention would be in New Orleans in June. The district attorney and his staff took over an old nightclub, the PBS NewsHour correspondent Betty Ann Bowser reported, conducting business beneath the glare of a disco ball. The public defender was forced to lay off more than 30 of its lawyers, leaving only nine attorneys to handle thousands of cases. Life in Refrigerator City, the Times-Picayune's Chris Rose, labeled those first post-storm months in his book, One Dead in Attic, a collection of columns he wrote in the first 18 months after Katrina. People thought they were leaving for a few days and returned weeks later to freezers Full of putrefying meat. So even the dry parts of New Orleans were lined with ruined refrigerators that stood as a small, semi-permanent billboard for voicing displeasure in frustrating times. When it seemed that Tom Benson, the owner of the Saints, might move the city's football team to San Antonio, Texas, discarded duct-taped refrigerators around town, announced Tom Benson inside. Life along the river felt congested even in a city still missing most of its people. Traffic lights were out everywhere, turning busy intersections into a four-way stop. Rubble from the storm still blocked main thoroughfares. The St. Charles streetcar line remained shut down for more than a year. A refrigerator could sit curbside for months even in parts of town that had remained dry and an estimated 100,000 wrecked cars 
littered the streets all over town. People had small complaints about finding a doctor or a dry cleaner and large-scale laments about a mayor many feared would not be up to the task of rebuilding the city. Consensus among those residing in the Isle of Denial was that the answer to the city's woes was simple. Offer people buyouts in low-lying communities starting with the residents of the Lower Ninth Ward and focus on fixing up dilapidated homes in parts of the city that had been blighted before Katrina. Anyone doubting the wisdom of that solution needed to look no further than the side-by-side maps the Times-Picayune had published on its front page that fall. One map showed the city as it existed in 1870. The other showed the areas that had flooded after Katrina hit. The area that had remained dry and the city boundaries as they existed in 1870 were nearly identical. The city's Greg Mafert seemed to get it when he told CNN's Soledad O'Brien in early November, the answers to our present are really in our past. All we've got to do is do what people were doing in the late 1800s. But then the mayor would speak as if he hadn't seen the front page maps. If the president follows through with his pledge to provide us with enough resources, the mayor said that same week, we can rebuild New Orleans totally. The graffiti on the refrigerators around town asked the question, where's Nagin? Each time Ray and I would talk, I would walk away more angry, Ron Foreman said. Much of the city was still without electricity or drinkable water. Most of its residents were living scattered across the country. People were making do on couches and doubling up with relatives. Yet Nagin didn't seem to be working half as hard as Foreman or any other chief executive he knew. There was this lack of engagement, this lack of urgency, Foreman said. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore. I told him, this is getting personal with me. We gave up everything to be behind you and you're not doing your job. I was fed up. Ray Nagin heard it all the time. Why couldn't he be more like Rudy Giuliani, the New York mayor who had acted so decisively in the days after September 11? Giuliani's star turn had produced a bestseller, followed by a lucrative speaking career and even a short-lived run at the presidency. Nagin had a copy of Giuliani's leadership on a bookshelf in his office, a freebie he had picked up at a charity golf tournament a year or two earlier. People around Nagin doubted he had even looked at it given the mayor's irritation when Giuliani's name came up. Nagin would offer the same response each time. He had been marooned on a small island of high ground and slept in a blasted-out hotel that had lost its power and had no working toilets. The death total was greater inside the World Trade Center than on the streets of New Orleans, but Giuliani slept in his own bed the week of September 11, left to worry about the significant but small corner of his city that had been destroyed. You've never had a city devastated like this, Nagin said repeatedly to friends, 
to reporters to anyone pressing him about the city's rebuilding efforts. Insurance companies were already declaring Katrina the most expensive disaster in history. Historians were labeling the dispersal of the city's residents and the largest American diaspora in history bigger even than the displacement caused by the winds and drought of the Dust Bowl. The American Waterworks Association declared that New Orleans had experienced the most catastrophic multi-system failure by a U.S. city in modern history. The destruction of the city's power grid and also its gas system were unprecedented, as was the blow to the New Orleans economy. It's not going to be a pretty process, Megan said two months after Katrina, but I'm sure the Harvard Business Review will be doing case studies on this for years. By early November, a team of 50-plus city inspectors had graded 60,000 of the 110,000 homes in the flooded parts of the city. Two in every three they tagged with either a yellow sticker, meaning it was more than 50% destroyed, or red, indicating that the city thought it needed to be bulldozed. Contractors working for FEMA had removed an astonishing 1.3 million cubic yards of debris, fallen trees, wrecked cars, pieces of broken homes blocking a street, discarded furniture, yet that represented only a tiny fraction of the garbage that authorities predicted they would need to clear. Housing is probably our most pressing issue right now, the mayor declared. And yet every time he or one of his people approached FEMA about trailers, they were met with excuses. The same federal government that had moved too slowly right after Katrina, Negan said, was now dragging its feet on the recovery. Negan phoned his new friends inside the White House. I told them, I really can't wait until you figure out what the final deal number is, Negan said. Let them work out inside the Beltway whether the region would receive $100 billion or $200 billion or $250 billion. He asked the White House to free up $100 million as a down payment on money that would eventually flow to the city to help us cover the cost of operations for the next three to six months. Officials promised to see what they could do but nothing happened. While on the phone with someone from the White House, Negan repitched a more modest version of the tax plan that David White had devised right after the storm. What if any business or individual agreeing to move to New Orleans got a 50% reduction rather than the 100% they had originally asked in taxes for seven years instead of 10 as a way of inducing people to rebuild. Megan was turned down. I've thrown out some pretty creative ideas, Negan told a pair of Times reporters he had invited into his office two months after the storm. The problem was that the bureaucracy couldn't see beyond its Byzantine rules. Even the city's business community hadn't caught up to the reality of post-Katrina New Orleans, he said. He mentioned the casino idea he had floated and their reaction to it as if he had suggested 
carving out an Amsterdam-like red-light district in the center of town. I have a tendency, and I'm not being bravado about this, but I have a tendency to see things probably a little quicker than others, Negan said. Negan was capable of acting boldly. When, later that fall, FEMA announced it had 31,000 trailers available to any Gulf Coast community needing them, Negan invoked the emergency powers the city council had granted him after the storm. He would have trailers delivered to parks and playgrounds around the city. He would set them up on the neutral ground in any community with the necessary utilities. Megan also endorsed the idea of temporary tent cities in the city's parks. We need to let people come back home, the mayor proclaimed. Megan stood strong when members of the city council lambasted him for a plan that might mean black people would temporarily live in predominantly white neighborhoods. One white member of the council stressed the importance of parks and playgrounds in the life of a child in a city without children. Another council member, also white, said she resented those who were insinuating that race played any role in her vote and then said she could support putting trailers in her district if they were reserved for first responders. When the council passed legislation giving an individual council member final say over any temporary housing slated for his or her district, Negan vetoed the bill, setting up a legal battle. Across the Gulf Coast, communities were receiving bulk shipments of FEMA trailers, but not New Orleans. In Lakeview, people seethed over a mayor whom they had helped put in office several years earlier. Electricity had only recently been restored and a few intrepid souls had started to work on their homes. Now Negan wanted to put trailers on the neutral ground on West End Boulevard a few blocks from the neighborhood's western border and more trailers and possibly a tent city in City Park which served as Lakeview's eastern border? A lot of us agreed that the last thing that Lakeview needed was to be turned into a trailer park for the rest of the city, said Jeb Bruno, then president of the Lakeview Civic Improvement Association. The mayor was going to turn the park and our neighborhood into a dump without the courtesy, he added, of talking about it with anyone who lived in Lakeview. Megan backed down. He agreed to grant individual members of the council veto power over any housing built in his or her district and fought FEMA when it attempted to set up trailers at sites his administration had already approved. The trailer parks would instead be set up on the grounds of New Orleans public housing projects and other places where City Hall would receive no pushback. But while the mayor and city council negotiated, the people of Lakeview weren't taking chances. People were emptying the waterlogged innards of their homes and small mountains of discarded appliances, couches, and other detritus formed around the neighborhood. We figured, why not take care of two problems at once? 
Bruno said. So we started piling all our trash on the neutral ground on West End. How could the city set up trailers on a stretch of grass serving as the community dump? Nothing seemed easy. Everything seemed to spark a fight. More than half of the city's inhabitants were renters. What about all those apartments around New Orleans filled with people's possessions even as their occupants were living a thousand or two thousand miles away? Landlords had plenty of motivation for rehabbing units in a market where $550 apartments were renting for $800 or more and cheap motels ringing the city were charging downtown hotel prices. The governor had seemingly done the humane thing when she placed a moratorium on post-Katrina evictions, angering landlords. Nagan, by contrast, was inclined to take the side of the landlords in a city desperate for housing. When in the last week of October, Blanco, under pressure, lifted her ban, landlords inundated the courts with eviction notices. That's somebody's life in there, a legal aid attorney told a Knight Riddler reporter. You want a chance to save it. Under Louisiana law, a person could be evicted and his or her possessions tossed into a dumpster within 10 days. But legal aid sued, putting the matter on hold. The city's pending elections precipitated another legal battle. New Orleans was slated to have its first round of voting for mayor and city council on February 4th. Any runoffs would be held one month later. The obvious question was whether the city could even pull off an election in its disabled state. Racial issues also had to be considered in a city that was majority white in the fall of 2005. Civil rights groups were threatening a lawsuit if the election was not postponed while prominent voices uptown were making the case that Louisiana's Secretary of State, Al Adder, in whose hands this hot potato had landed, had no legal basis for ordering a delay. At the Bourbon House late one night, Greg Mafert admitted he probably had too much to drink when things turned unpleasant between him and a white legislator, arguing that the election would be a chance for whites to grab back control of the city whilst most of the black community was scattered around the country. The woman's husband, Mufford said, needed to intervene before things turned ugly. There was this big push to whiteify everything, Mufford said. Al Adder asked FEMA for $2 million to replace voting machines damaged in the flooding. FEMA turned down his request just as its people said no when the Secretary of State asked the agency to underwrite the cost of sending notices to displaced residents to let them know they could vote by absentee ballot. The Bush White House even rejected Adder's request that FEMA share with the local election authorities the addresses of evacuees. Without help, Adder said, New Orleans would not be ready to hold an election by early February. To figure out what to do, Adder, who had been in office for less than two months when Katrina hit, assembled an advisory group. 
members included both party leaders and civil rights advocates. The plan they devised included satellite polling places in Baton Rouge, Houston, Atlanta, and other cities home to a large number of evacuees. Based on their recommendations, Adder said the elections needed to be postponed for at least eight months. A Republican mayoral hopeful sued. So too did the developer Prez Kabakov. A federal judge was sympathetic but emphatic. Mr. Adder, she told him, if you don't set a date in April, I'm going to do it for you. Shortly thereafter, the Secretary of State announced that the election would be held April 22nd with runoffs scheduled for May 20th. Dueling bureaucrats were the main combatants in the fight over Charity Hospital. Founded in 1736, Charity was the country's oldest public hospital, but after the death of a wealthy shipbuilder whose will instructed that his fortune be used to finance a hospital for the city's indigent. Since the days of Huey Long, Charity had been housed in a handsome Art Deco style building on the edge of the central business district. The staff, working with dozens of military personnel, had scrubbed clean the first three floors of the 20-story hospital when the state agency that ran Charity ordered them to stop. We're concerned for your safety, the authorities said, but the doctors, nurses, and others on whose behalf the state was acting saw the move as nothing but a cynical play for a bigger FEMA payout. For years, the state had sought to demolish charity and replace it with a hospital that no longer had as its main purpose treatment of the city's uninsured. The state, several doctors charged, saw Katrina as a way to get the feds to pick up the bill. At first, those ordered to stop working on charity defied an order they saw as irresponsible in a city with an acute shortage of hospital beds. They would be chased out several times before the state locked the building. Their makeshift crews, populated with medical professionals, had worn shirts and t-shirts while working on the building. But when the state invited television crews inside the shuttered facility to see the damage for themselves, they insisted that everybody sign a medical release form and wear protective suits. The magic number in post-Katrina New Orleans was 50%. FEMA would pay to tear down and rebuild a structure rather than simply repair it if the damage estimate exceeded half the replacement cost. A consultant for the state declared that fixing the facility would equal 65% of the replacement cost, but a FEMA representative doubting the damage was anywhere that extensive, said the agency would do its own assessment. In the meantime, this 2,700-bed hospital sat empty. Public housing was proving another flashpoint in post-Katrina New Orleans. More than 5,000 families were paying rent each month to the Housing Authority of New Orleans at the time of Katrina, and Hanno, as everyone called the agency, had another 2,000 apartments sitting vacant. Many of Hanno's residents were older New Orleanians, but four in every ten residents worked. They were the working poor who changed bedpans, cleaned hotel rooms, and washed dishes. 
reopening public housing as fast as possible seemed critical to reigniting the city's economy. But rebuilding the projects also meant inviting back a portion of the city's population living on public aid or disability. Most public housing residents in New Orleans lived in complexes of low-rise, stolid brick buildings built in the 1940s and 1950s. Two of the city's four largest housing projects escaped Katrina with little damage. In this city, desperate for affordable housing, at least a couple of thousand units could be made habitable with only cosmetic improvements. Yet that wasn't necessarily welcome news in a city where people were imagining much of New Orleans as a clean slate. We finally cleaned up public housing in New Orleans, Richard Baker, a 10-term congressman from Baton Rouge, a Republican, was quoted as saying after Katrina, We couldn't do it, but God did. What a waste of a disaster, some argued, if the authorities simply allowed Hano residents to move back into their former homes. People contacted Barbara Major to do something about public housing. They reached out to her for help countering the forces trying to shut down charity. They called to talk about the schools or the fight over the placement of trailers. But Major's life then was her extended family and the epic fights she was waging with FEMA or an insurance company on behalf of one member or another of her clan. She recalls feeling powerless at the time, not despite her exalted position as co-chair of the Bring New Orleans Back Commission, but because of it. She wanted to help black-owned businesses feeling locked out of the bidding for contracts, yet she couldn't get FEMA to return her own phone calls. All I heard was pain, Major said. I'd see people and I couldn't do anything. The pig. That's what the people who worked for the RTA called the former Piggly Wiggly grocery store in Baton Rouge that the agency leased following Katrina. The pig served as the RTA's temporary offices and its maintenance yard and a barracks for those who couldn't find housing in the area. This agency of 1,300 before the storm employed around 300 as it struggled to rebuild post-Katrina. One early task was tracking down the RTA buses that didn't drown. They'd sell for scrap the 200 or so buses destroyed by the floodwaters, but another 70 buses had been parked on the high ground along the river. Those had been commandeered by people desperate to exit the city. Tracking them down fell to Jacques Robichaud, the agency's superintendent of bus maintenance. That was a good portion of my life for months, Robichaud said. A few buses had been abandoned on the West Bank, but most they found scattered around the state. Two needed to be driven back from Houston. The agency would leave a pair upstate in Alexandria because town officials were asking the agency to pay what Robichaud thought were exorbitant towing and storage charges. Initially, the RTA put its drivers to work running buses in Baton Rouge to help with overflow. It also set up a commuter line to New Orleans. 
by November, the agency was running several bus routes in New Orleans. Other modes of transportation were also expanding their service as more people moved back home. Whereas by the end of September, the city's airport was handling 30 departing flights a day, that number doubled to 60 in November. Amtrak and Greyhound also started running more trains and buses to and from New Orleans. The city was still under a bottle water advisory, but in November, the city's water agency declared water drinkable in every part of the city outside New Orleans East and the Lower Ninth Ward. Isolated patches of the city were still without running water, a circumstance that could prove disastrous in the event of a fire, but most of New Orleans was protected. Nearly half the toilets in the city were still not connected to the sewer system. 40% of the city was still without electricity. Nearly 50% lacked natural gas for cooking or heat in a city where the nighttime temperatures were dipping below 40 degrees. Dan Packer and his team, under pressure from the city council, developed a plan for Entergy to provide electricity to at least 80% of the city by year's end and gas service to that same proportion of its customers by mid-January. But those were just words on paper for a bankrupt subsidiary relying on its corporate bosses in Jackson, Mississippi and volunteer crews from around the country. Entergy New Orleans was a utility with extraordinary expenses and only a small fraction of its pre-storm customer base paying for its services. Packer spent much of his time up in Washington telling his woeful tale to anyone willing to meet with him, including Andrew Card, Bush's chief of staff. The bottom line is that as a regulated monopoly, we're allowed to pass legitimate expenses along to customers, Packer said. So either the government was going to help pay for a lot of the damage, or ratepayers would. In November, Bush announced that Donald Powell, who since 2001 had served as chairman of the FDIC, would replace Admiral Thad Allen as the federal recovery czar. The city also had a new best friend in Richard Baker, the Baton Rouge Republican overheard cracking that God fixed public housing in New Orleans the way no mortal could. His penance was a bill that proposed that the federal government pay 60% of the pre-Katrina value on any property abandoned by a homeowner or business choosing not to rebuild. The property would then be the city's to redevelop. The state's entire congressional delegation was behind what everyone was calling the Baker Bill, as were Nakin and Blanco. Joe Canazzaro also supported this legislation, which would provide the funding mechanism needed to rebuild New Orleans more sensibly. I think we all believed there would be more happening than is happening right now, Canazzaro said in early December. Maybe Baker would break the logjam. After denial comes anger. The fall was also a time for recriminations and finger-pointing. Culprits were everywhere during the multiple hearings held by both the U.S. Senate and the House looking into what went wrong in the days following Katrina. 
depending on the day and who was talking, everything was Bush's fault, Nagin's, Blanco's, or that of the people who failed to get themselves out of harm's way. Just baloney, Michael Brown had said of the White House's claim that they didn't realize a disaster was taking place in New Orleans until at least 24 hours after the levees broke. The Bush administration refused to make senior officials available to congressional investigators. The White House also held back a large portion of the Katrina-related documents that Congress had requested. Across the river from New Orleans in Gretna, officials might have considered themselves lucky. In an era of 24-hour news, their small burr might have become another Howard Beach or south-central Los Angeles, a locale whose name invokes a racially charged incident that took place there, if not for a media distracted by so many other angles to the Katrina story. Yet even the relatively small amount of attention the story received sparked a defensiveness among town leaders. Two weeks after Katrina, the Gretna City Council unanimously approved a resolution supporting the chief of police's decision to deny access to the city of Gretna. Signs started popping up on lawns around town. We support Chief Lawson. People on the other side of the bridge, including some of those part of the RTA contingent, were talking to lawyers about a civil rights claim against the city. When the first of those suits were filed that November, Chief Lawson said it's being made into a racial issue by certain individuals, but that's not what it was all about. It was a season for filing bold lawsuits. One local lawyer sued the Army Corps of Engineers, claiming fraud. The Corps had promised a levee system that could withstand a Category 3 storm, yet Katrina, a weak Category 3, if not a 2 by the time it hit New Orleans, caused the city's flood protection system to collapse. John Cummings, a prominent trial attorney who was part of the big tobacco settlement years earlier, also sued the Corps. He didn't charge the Corps with incompetence or negligence, but criminality. If your supervisors are asleep, they simply don't supervise the installation of the sheet piling. That's incompetence or gross negligence, Cummings said. But when they certify that the sheet piling is 23 feet and it's really 17 feet, that's a crime. Others sued the Orleans Levy Board, which was responsible for maintaining the levees that the Corps had built. Suits would be filed as well over Mr. Go. Before the lawyers took aim at one another, the battle for the truth needed to be waged on the ground in New Orleans. On one side was the Corps, an operation with roots dating back to 1775 and a reputation to uphold. In the months after Katrina, spokespeople for the Corps insisted that the city's flood protection system failed because it had not been built to withstand a storm as strong as Katrina. The levees had overtopped, they claimed, and the force of the water rushing over the walls had caused small sections to give way. On the other side were scientists such as Ivor Van Heerden, deputy director of the LSU Hurricane Center, and among the first to suspect that the Corps was not being completely candid 
with the public. For years, Van Heerden had been outspoken in warning of the potential for catastrophic flooding following a bad hurricane. But Katrina had been a decidedly mild hurricane, Van Heerden said, at least from New Orleans' perspective. The levees should not have overtopped according to the storm surge models he and his colleagues had created. Their thesis was that the levees had collapsed due to faulty designs or problems in their construction, if not both. To figure out what happened, the state asked Van Heerden, who taught in LSU's Civil and Environmental Engineering Department, to assemble a group of colleagues. Team Louisiana, as they were called, looked through wrecked homes in search of battery-powered clocks and interviewed dozens of survivors to figure out what time the floodwaters hit a community. Others picked up shovels to sift through the dirt and sometimes taste it to see what clues the soil might offer. The more time Van Heerden spent in deserted sections of New Orleans, the more he thought of all the lives lost and disrupted and the angrier he grew. Call it a blame game if you must, Van Heerden said, but some of us were determined to find out exactly what had happened and to demand justice from the responsible parties. Chapter 14 Look and Leave Nearly two months after Katrina, 40,000 people were still sleeping shoulder to shoulder in emergency shelters around Louisiana. Kathleen Blanco's solution was an emergency order granting her the right to use state-owned lands to house evacuees, even if prohibited by local ordinance. 600 trailers were trucked to a small town on the edge of the Baton Rouge metro area. There, next to a juvenile prison, FEMA opened the first of a dozen-plus trailer parks around the state. FEMA opened similar camps in another 16 states to shelter another 30,000 evacuees the majority of whom had been saved from New Orleans once the buses started rolling up to the Superdome or the convention center. The largest number of evacuees went to Houston. Most of those ended up in either the Astrodome or the Reliance Center, where a professor named Carolyn Heldman was horrified by what she found. Heldman, who taught political science at Occidental College in Los Angeles, had been so angered by images out of New Orleans in those first days after the flooding that she convinced the Pacifica radio station in Southern California to give her the press credentials she would need to get in to New Orleans. En route, she stopped at the two indoor stadiums. There, she found fluorescent lights and loudspeaker announcements 24 hours a day, smells emanating from the bathroom and guards walking patrols with M-16s. That was in stark contrast, Heldman said, to what she observed at the Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego, counselors, back massages, a bounty of fresh food, after a wildfire had made hundreds of people homeless several years earlier. Heldman, who is white, could walk freely through the two shelters while a black colleague was harassed 
by soldiers, she said, though both wore the same press badge. People were free to hop a cab to the airport and fly anywhere they wanted if they had the money. But most of those who ended up in Houston were stuck wherever they had landed. 93% of those in a Houston area shelter, one poll found, were black. Three quarters had kids with them. Communities around the country showed great generosity toward the New Orleans diaspora, starting with the invitation to welcome people into their towns. Church groups organized clothing and coat drives. Local businesses donated pampers and toiletries and book bags for school-aged kids. One Houston school was so serious about its promise to teach the New Orleans evacuees that officials there checked in every day with the local shelters to make sure children were attending classes. Parents arrived without birth certificates and immunization records, but school officials told them to worry about that later. Churches held potlucks and campaigns to find spare rooms for those in need, yet the same television images that stirred up fears among officials in Gretna and Baton Rouge also impacted officials wherever New Orleans evacuees showed up. At a high school in the Kansas City metro area, Dominique Townsend, a sweet-faced 16-year-old, black, was brought to the auditorium with all the other kids from New Orleans. There, the authorities laid out a strict set of rules that had evacuee kids staying after school for infractions that didn't earn local kids the same punishment. We were seen as the trouble children, Townsend said. They were even forbidden from sitting together in the cafeteria because, Townsend said, we were known as the Nala Gang, whatever that meant. Nala, short for New Orleans, Louisiana, is a common way people refer to New Orleans. In time, the New Orleanians were the house guests who overstayed their welcome. Just before Thanksgiving, a brawl between the locals and Katrina kids at one Houston high school was so big it made the newspaper. Similar melees broke out at high schools in Dallas and San Antonio. A white political science professor at Rice University in Houston overheard the black woman working the register at his local grocery store talk about those people. He was baffled until he realized she was referring to a group of evacuees from New Orleans. Officials in Washington were also looking at the calendar. Three months into the disaster, the government was picking up the tab for the 150,000 or so storm victims still living in hotels around the country. The Bush administration decided that it had had enough in mid-November. That's when FEMA announced that people would be responsible for their own hotel bills on December 1st. The agency paid contractors to slip warnings under the doors of evacuees and hired caseworkers or anyone needing help finding an apartment or other temporary housing. People would still be eligible for as much as $800 a month in rental assistance, a FEMA official announced, through the end of February. They just needed to be someplace other than a hotel. A federal judge, a New Orleans native appointed to the bench by Bill Clinton, ruled that two weeks' notice wasn't enough warning. 
FEMA would announce several more final dates, December 15th, January 7th, but that only led to more legal wrangling. How could FEMA expect people to make long-term housing decisions, lawyers for the evacuees asked, when the city itself was still making up its mind about the future of their neighborhoods? Many clients wanted to move into a FEMA trailer on their property, except they still didn't have electricity or gas in their part of the city, and the long waiting lists suggested the agency wouldn't have a trailer if they did. The government managed to get almost everyone out of the hotels by the end of February, but that led to a new crisis as emergency shelters faced an influx of Katrina cast-offs. They would need to be housed somewhere, a hotel perhaps, until space could be found in a FEMA trailer park. I don't know if you understand the magnitude of this disaster, a FEMA spokesman told the New York Times. Nearly 1.5 million people registered for assistance in a disaster zone the White House was describing, somewhat hyperbolically, as roughly the size of Great Britain. Hundreds of thousands of people were also affected by Rita. Every household registering with FEMA for help received a minimum of $2,000, no questions asked. Larger families could qualify for more. FEMA picked up the tab for the buses and planes that shipped people around the country and spent another $3 billion on trailers. The government provided rental assistance to more than 700,000 families after Katrina and Rita at a cost of more than $4 billion. One item FEMA doesn't cover, however, is a return ticket home. As a practical matter, poor folks don't have the resources to go back to our city just like they didn't have the resources to get out of our city, Joe Canazaro told the Associated Press. So we won't get all those folks back. That's just a fact. It's not what I want. It's just a fact. A master plan by the end of 2005 had been the mayor's mandate to his Bring New Orleans Back commission in September. A plan in hand by the start of the new year was a personal commitment we made to the president, Boise Bollinger said in October. Yet by that Thanksgiving, even commissioners were admitting that they would miss their deadline. Five weeks to get even a draft done? That's unrealistic, declared Tulane President Scott Cohen. The new deadline would be the president's State of the Union at the end of January. The mealtime options were slim in small-town New Orleans. So when a subset of the commission, Conazaro, co-chair Mel Lagarde, and a few others would join Negan at the Sheraton in a private room, they were doing so in plain view of the other commissioners who tended to eat at the same second-floor restaurant before meetings. Alden McDonald never cared that he wasn't part of the in-crowd. I have plenty to keep me busy, he said, but others did. Just a few friends getting together with the mayor to talk, Joe Conazaro said. Countered Oliver Thomas, 
No one goes over with us what they discuss at these lunch meetings. It would be nice if they did. Kanazaro's lament wasn't divisions within the commission, but the lack of meaningful dialogue among its members. I think we're at the point, he said in the second half of November, where the commission has to ask whether or not it's going to be able to make the tough decisions we need to make. A case in point was the first meeting held after the Urban Land Institute presented the city with its recommendations. The commissioners spent more of their time excoriating 60 Minutes for its piece the night before called New Orleans is Sinking. Can we, or should we, put New Orleans back together again? Correspondent Scott Pelley had asked at the top of the show, then talking about any of the ULI's recommendations. Conazaro took a final shot at sparking a debate in mid-December. He reiterated his contention that he didn't think they could afford to rebuild all of New Orleans, but this time he cited findings of the ULI and also a RAND study that predicted that even three years after Katrina, nearly half of the city's population would still be living outside the city. He offered a compromise. What if we let people rebuild anywhere they want and then reevaluate? Alden McDonald spoke right after Canazaro. McDonald had remained relatively quiet whenever the commissioners met in public. He's never a guy who says much in group settings, said Sally Foreman. But that only means people really listen when he does. McDonald began by giving his bona fides. He lived in a neighborhood that the experts were suggesting should be converted back to marshland. Most of his customers, too, lived in affected communities. Yet it would be cruel to encourage people to move back home without first giving them all the facts, he said. The ULI had given a name to one fear, the jack-o'-lantern effect, but he had others. We really need to ask what kind of community it will be if there aren't adequate services, if there aren't grocery stores and other things that people need to make a community worth living in, McDonald said. Yet, there the discussion ended. No one seconded Canazaro's motion. No one took up where McDonald had left off. Instead, the commissioners declared this public meeting their last, then wished one another a good holiday season. It would fall on the committee chairs to work out the details of the plan, which is how a wealthy white Republican from the suburbs came to decide the future of New Orleans' low-lying neighborhoods. And that is where we will pick up at for the second audio segment. We are in chapter 14, Context of White Supremacy. Gary Riblin's Katrina After the Flood. Uh, for folks who would like to participate, the number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code 564943-POUND. Press star six if 
you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. The code, 564 nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate if you do not want to use your phone to dial in you can use the free vote line uh, it works anywhere in the world uh, it's linked at black talk radio network uh, if you need the address it is tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one that address again tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one when you put in that address click the link on the left of the page it says uh, free vote line click it it'll open a tiny window on your screen on the top line it's a drop down menu select the number that I just gave out which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the next line it will ask for the code that code again is five six four nine four three final line it will ask for a name you can use your real name nickname press random keys whatever you're comfortable with once you get all that entered uh, click the green button at the bottom it will connect you to the live program you should be able to hear us and it is the same procedure if you would like to participate press star six uh, with that, make sure I can remember to get in my disclaimer uh, this time. I know this is, uh, I think, one of the few where we're doing a book that's on an event that is relatively recent. I think most of us remember all of this that happened uh, in 2005 and some of the things that have unfolded more recently. So I think that's contributing. But uh, if we could uh, try to focus on the section of the book that we're covering this week, uh, not getting too far ahead in the story and talking about things that have not happened yet. Uh, again, I think this week we're just hitting the halfway point. We have quite a bit of material left. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that, you know, has not happened yet in the book, we just haven't got to it yet. So if you could just stick within this section, uh, this is not a free for all to just find anything that is remotely related to New Orleans. We're talking about a sister. Uh, we're talking about a city that has well over 200 years of history. So it might be informative and constructive to talk about the Louisiana Purchase and how that relates to Hurricane Katrina, but that is not what we're talking about. That has nothing to do with the section, so if that's what you want to talk about or if that's what you want to bring up, if you could save that for another time, that would be grand. We could focus on what we're talking about, what we're reading specifically this week. That would be great if you know you're dialing in and you have comments that have nothing to do with what we're talking about. It would be wonderful if you could save that for another time, maybe even tomorrow. You could call in and share it if you know what you have to say has nothing to do with what we're talking about and specifically the section of the book that we read 
this week. Grand. Everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Feel free to chime in. Your line should be open. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Uh, thanks, Gus, for all that you do. And um, I'm really enjoying the book. Uh, this particular reading, what stood out, I, I think that the Wall sisters, uh, Cassandra and her sisters, were, you know, considered... Uh, middle-class blacks, so-called, and they were caught up as evacuees, and they went into a, another city. <clears throat> it's interesting that you look into their lives and you can see how they got caught up in an image that people had of refugees or some undesirable people coming into your area. I remember when... Um, my brother was living in Alabama, and the evacuees came into that area, and one of his white neighbors uh, asked him if some visiting relatives were those refugees from New Orleans. You know, so it was a, a feeling of resentment or animosity towards people that was displaced just because of a natural disaster, and it was sad. Another point is the 55 Michigan State Troopers that had volunteered to help out down on the Gulf Coast. And then when they got down there, they said that they were under orders to make life unpleasant for the New Orleans evacuees so that they would relocate somewhere else. And I wouldn't doubt that, you know. Picking on the people that already went through a uh, horrific experience. You know, a lot of them lost their jobs, homes, the kids are displaced out of school. And then you have the law enforcement agencies picking on you and further mistreating you. Um, the Wall Sisters felt pressure to go back to New Orleans and then. You know, you can't blame people for wanting to go back to their homes. That's where uh, their lives were made. And But then when there's no hospitals and there's no uh, grocery stores, you don't know whether the insurance company is going to settle with you, uh, whether you can, you know, get flood protection, all these things, and you know, another thing about kids going to school at a certain age, you know, moving them in and out of school systems or different states and all that has got a devastating effect on uh, young minds. And usually black people are doing the service-oriented jobs, so when the uh, Katrina happened, the UPS driver, James, Conway was just had a small portion he was working, and then now he's got the entire area. You can imagine all of those service industries of people that stayed back. They were overworked. 
or whatever, and underpaid, and, you know, that's just, you know, part of this problem. And then you can see where uh, Ron Foreman, you know, later, he was an aide, you know, one of Ray Nagin's aides, but he was starting to turn on him, disagreeing with what he was saying, and, you know, his whole staff was breaking up. I didn't agree with the fact that he laid off over half of the staff, and, you know, while people, and also, I'm going to say one more thing uh, about the governor. Uh, she started this thing about the evictions, and then she later rescinded on it, and then the author said that she had a humane view. You know, and I don't think that's very humane when you, all you did was realize what you had done earlier was a mistake. And uh, when Ray Nagin suggested that the casinos, you know, come to town, I don't think that that was his original idea. I think that more powerful white people, you know, probably put him up to saying that and opening the suggestions of bringing those casinos in. It seems out of character that you're a mayor of a city that's been devastated and you come up with uh, more casinos to the area. I'll mute my line and uh, let somebody else get a chance. Thanks for taking the call, bro. Yes, sir. Good to hear from you, Mr. Demery. For uh, other folks that dialed in with a hand up should be with us as well. Feel free. Bobby Hurt? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, Mr. Demery, and everyone else that's um, on the line. Um, few observations. Um, some of them kind of mirror what Mr. Demery said. Um, I was shocked that they only had 5,000 public housing units in the whole city before Katrina. And, um, you know, it just shows, like, um, I think I mentioned before, the, the videos, the music videos from the people from that area, you know, they would get such negative images, and you would see these housing units. And I had, I was under the assumption that most everyone there lives in the, in the projects, I guess. You know, um, uh, so I was shocked that they only had 5,000 residents, you know, um, in the whole housing project. Um, not 5,000, well, 5,000 families, rather. Um, this place in this treaty, um, I'm sure everywhere they went, they were displaced and mistreated. And, um, you know, somewhat just to mirror what Mr. Demery said, when kids get taken from school to school, it's not just going school to school. I mean, some of these kids are going state to state. And, um, you know, each state has different requirements and qualifications. I know uh, when I grew up, if someone came from certain places, they would get left back, even though they were... Let's just say you were in the sixth grade, and they were in the sixth grade when they came to, you know, the school district. They had to do the fifth grade because they didn't do the work we've done to get to the sixth grade yet in their school district. So I could just imagine how terrible this was, and you know, empathizing with these people who the negative images, like I said, from those videos and other things um, that's always been out there about the black people in New Orleans carried them, I'm sure, not just to Baton Rouge, but to Atlanta, Houston, and everywhere else they went. It was the same way. Um, the, the police 
from other places, um, probably, you know, just as nasty as the police that were in Baton Rouge. And, um, you know, and, uh, they were under orders to make the citizens' life impossible, the New Orleans citizens, to make them want to leave, don't want to stay here. And um, I know Baton Rouge has a, has a few black people there, too. I mean, I wonder how they differentiated or if they even cared. You know, they probably made all the black people's life impossible uh, for that for that time. Um, and um, Michigan cops, you know, it doesn't stop me um, hearing some of the stories from Detroit and um, a few other places, especially the white parts of Michigan, how nasty the cops are, uh, just doesn't shock me. The New Mexico cops inform about all the racist terrorism that they they witnessed, but they either had to sit there and participate in it or observe it and do nothing until they get all the way back to New Mexico and still after that, no charges was pressed. Um, the last point that really stood out to me was San Diego. Well, after a wildfire, you know, a wildfire which was sort of like this, this community, you know, uh, wildfires are a result of white people building homes and residential areas and places they should have built in the first place. Um, you build in the middle of the woods, you know, your people, you know, you're going to put the ash somewhere, it's going to cause a wildfire. And, um, you know, they do all that to avoid from living around black people. <laughs> you know, they built the city in the middle of the woods, but yet after their houses burn down, they get displaced, they get pampered in the stadium, they get counseling and back massages, in contrast to the Superdome. And um, what the author pointed out right after he you read that passage, you, the next passage, she kind of went into a black guy who was working with a white person in the press. And um, just to show how bad the people were treated, this black reporter with a press badge couldn't even get around the stadium without being harassed by soldiers, which leads me to think that the Superdome was more like a prison than a refuge or a shelter. I mean, if they're harassing a black guy with a press badge, who obviously probably looks like he hasn't been homeless or displaced, and he's going to get harassed if he's black. What are you doing? Where are you going? I could imagine how the people that were in there under those circumstances were treated by those same soldiers. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. All right, all right, all right. Other uh, callers with a hand up have commentary to share? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Good evening, guys. Uh, good evening to all the other callers. Um, first of all, I have to say, oh, I just can't believe the Trinity Hospital was closed. I mean, I've I worked in, you know, the, the fairy tale, you know, public hospitals like Grady, you know, and Cook County, and Bentall and stuff. So, but I can't believe charity is closed. I mean, charity was, charity, charity rocks. I'm just going to tell you, as far as, as far as, you know, hospitals for the indigent, charity rocks. I mean, you hear so many lawsuits coming out about these other hospitals. Nothing about charity. Centuries. Charity was, no wonder they had to shut that down. 
They did so much good. Charity did so much good. You guys just you just will never know how how that that edifice just really turned the lives of so many people around. But okay, that's me. Um I was back to the children. So so he said he's never seen the principal said the Oh, wait a minute. Was that part of that was the newest thing in the beginning, wasn't it? Oh, wow. That was both. Anyway. It was mentioned within the body of the text uh, where they were talking about the displacement. It, that The exact clip that was mentioned at the beginning, the audio clip from NPR, that was mentioned in the book. He just didn't go into as much detail as they did in the NPR clip, but that was mentioned in the book this week. Yes. I mean, he's, he's like, oh, he's never seen children who had no fear. I think Compared, to, if I'm going to compare New Orleans and Texas, I have to say that I just have to say that the people in New Orleans and the young people have more. They are more self-possessed. They are okay. They are better in their blackness, even though, of course, you know they're confused and have that Creole thing going on. But uh, they have more people that they see who are black who are living their own lives. And it's not just this total domination where everything is white is right. They actually get to see black people in neighborhoods, doing things, having jobs, going places, having fun, you know, having family that's been there for, you know, forever. Whereas in Texas, I don't know what's going on with us. We're just like, we're the most docile people in the universe and easily I mean, it's almost permanently confused. So I would think that for him to see children like that, coming from that environment where they haven't been totally beat down into, you know, brainless mishmash, that that probably would be, that probably would be a shock for the uh, white people here in, 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 in the Houston, the greater Houston area or Texas in general. It is a totally different atmosphere. I've told people before, I mean, I've just been standing, and I'm from Texas, I've just been standing in places and I said, my God, this is the most racist place I've ever been. People say, where are you from? I said, I'm from here. So, you know, it's just out, out of all of the states I've been to and which countries I've been to, you know, there's just something going on with Texas. There really is. It's just, I'm sure that white man was shocked to see those children so self-possessed. I reckon karma is all done. Um, oh yes, I'm all done. Thanks. Oh, thank, thank you, everyone. For sure, for sure. Uh, anybody else? I think uh, four or four might be in the building if she's able to talk now. I'm not sure. Uh, but anybody else, if you have comments, uh, feel free. If you're listening and you think you have a comment, you want to make sure you get in. Uh, don't wait till the last minute. Uh, we still have I think about 20 minutes before we get to the next audio segment. Uh, yes, girl. Yes, ma'am. I'm, I'm, I'm here. Can I, can I speak? Absolutely. Okay. Oh, greetings to you, Gus, and greetings to Karma, Mr. Demery Four, as well as to the caller from New York. And um, I, I have to agree with Karma in regards to charity hospital closing down. And as I've mentioned in previous readings, my husband was born in that hospital. So it has um, close personal ties as well as, well, all of, all of his um, 
relatives were born near his brothers, his sisters, they were all born at that particular hospital. And to see that they shut that hospital down, and as everyone has said, when it comes to the care and the treatment, it surpassed that as well as the LSU system. And that particular hospital between um, Charity Hospital as well as the VA Hospital, those were the, were the two hospitals that were accessible to people in that area. And, of course, you have to have a um, military background within which to use the VA facility. But if you were indigent or you didn't have any funds, you could only go to those two hospitals compared to if you wanted to go to the LSU or any one of the other facilities there where you are not, you're going to be not on proper care. And, of course, you, know, you go to those other places, they're going to use you as test subjects within the trial, all sort of things on you. But as the reading was stating, they cleaned the first three floors, and as they described um, Charity Hospital, it was one of those neoclassical buildings, and they wanted that building. They felt that they wanted to take care of that building where they stopped the cleanup efforts because they were determined that they were going to take it over, they were going to shut down that hospital, because right after that was um, was done, then you found out that LSU have a new paper um, paying system hospital that opened up there. I believe you read it in a couple of your other readings where um, when you started the beginning of the book where it says LSU have a new system that they recently opened up, I believe it was sometime this year, right in that same area where they shut down all of that facility. So the only thing left there now that you can use is the VA system if you are a veteran and you want to, um, to get medical facilities. So they are totally wiped out all means. As they say, they're going to remove the poor. They don't want the poor in that city. So now if you can't get medical treatment, then you're going to have to move further down the coast and go into Baton Rouge and other parts of the area within which that you might be able to um, access medical care. The other thing that really stood out and was very troubling was when they said that FEMA, they opened the first FEMA camp for the people in the Baton Rouge area. And where did they put it? Right next to a juvenile um, penal facility. That's where they, they decided, okay, we're going to um, put you in these formaldehyde trailer, uh, but then we're going to put you right next to a, um, to a juvenile prison complex where are we going to set up this trailer? So all along, it, it showed you that they had no regards for these people. They really could care less about them. They were just doing this as a, as a means to show that, okay, we are doing something. But in all um, probability, they, they could care less. They didn't want to do anything for these people. They would just wish that they would just go somewhere, disappear, and they didn't have to be bothered with them anymore. The uh, thing that everyone has mentioned about the children and the stress and their um how they were treated and looked at as being outsiders. I saw the same thing with them when they moved to Atlanta, when everyone found out, okay, that these are um, people that came from New Orleans and they were displaced as a result of this effort. Everyone set up, you know, even though we were all black people, we set up these class stratification about them versus us. And we take on the same mentality, okay, well, these people, because trying to the news about New Orleans at that time was, had the highest rate of crime in the upper urban centers. It was very at the very top of the FBI list. So everybody came over this idea with, okay, well, these people, well, these are, they let all these criminal elements come down here. Now we got to lock up everything and watch what we're doing because they're going to be coming here to take away the few little trinkets that we have. 
But it was nothing of the sort. These people were were displaced, and then for, for you to treat them in such a way to make them feel all welcome, this is their own country. People who are coming from other parts of the world who gets imported, who gets bring in to this country, they get better treatment. They get a big carpet rolled out as welcome to them. The so-called Latinos and aesthetic, they weren't treated like how black people were treated. And this is their country. They've been here longer than all, than, than all of these people who are making laws and things about them. They could trace their ancestry back in this land for 400 years. But yet still you are looked at as being unwanted just because you have to be poor and black. And um, the, the last thing that I was going on, that I was going to touch on in, in regards to this displacement as well as with, with everything else in Alma, and you mentioned with these cops that yet that comes in and we can see it once again these New Mexican and the one from Michigan troopers that came in and the whole idea was to harass people and do whatever everything that you can and I'm sure that the ones that come here or these white boys, because most state troopers that are on the force, they're white males who are from predominantly white communities that don't have interaction with anyone in the urban setting. So they already have these preconceived ideas in their heads from what they've seen on TV or on sets to them about how black people are and um, how to treat us. So here they are com- they're coming in here, and they're mixed in with the culture because you can say you want to stand up and you're not going to take part in it, but eventually it's going to rub off on you, it's going to taint you, and you're going to find yourself taking part in some of these terroristic activities. So even though they complain and they write back afterwards and say what they witnessed, you can bet that they were out there taking part in these, harassing these people, pushing them out, trying to get them to, even though these people um, in Baton Rouge, they've been there forever. But they're going to try and harass them because they happen to be black once again, they're easy targets, and therefore we can go after them and do whatever we want with them. And um, and with the Wall sisters, uh, um, as with Cassandra and her sisters, were were stating, you can see the tightness of that family, and already you can see, as the sister says, Robin, I believe it was, he said when she first moved back, when she said department rates went almost tripled from a standard to $1,250 a month apartment in New Orleans, and that was unheard of back in 2005. And you can imagine what that going rate is going for now into um, in 2015, if that's what she was paying back there for a one-bedroom apartment. Those are rates that you would normally expect to find places for her um, in, on the West Coast in California, um, L.A., that type of rates. You would find it, or, or maybe out in New York, Philadelphia, that area, you would find those separate, but not, in, but not out there in New Orleans, but because she happened to move into an area that is predominantly white, then you are paying that white, that black tax for living in a white area. That's what they're going to tack on to you. And then, of course, you're going to be looked at as, what are you doing here? Why, why do we, you know, we got to keep an eye on you. And as you mentioned, I was mentioned in the clip where they look at these children because these children were um, fighting. They call them a riot. White children could fight in a school, and it's okay, oh, it's just a high school fight. Children just having disagreements. But the minute it involves black students with white, all of a sudden it becomes a riot. It's no longer a, um, a school fight. I'll pause here and let the others get it. Cool in the gang. Cool in the gang. 404 and all the other folks. Good to hear from everyone. Again, if uh, other folks that are listening in, if you have 
a word you want to share, make sure you uh, don't wait if you want to comment before we do the second audio segment. Um, quick comments I want to make sure uh, I got in. Uh, I was, <laughs> I won't say stunned, but I at least thought it was significant uh, in looking at some of the other footage when they've covered uh, hurricanes that happened like, you know, in the middle of the 20th century and what have you. Uh, I saw some of the hurricanes where it was mostly white people that were impacted and they called them refugees too. <laughs> I was uh I was taken aback for a second, but uh it, you know, I took my pause, I made note. They did do uh they did call it when it was at least the footage I saw it was exclusively white people that were having to get shipped out and all that and they called them refugees. They were these were uh white people in this area of the world, the states. Anywho, um, Charity Hospital is going to be uh, more prominently talked about as the book continues. Uh, so it's going chronologically, so uh, there will be a lot more to come on how all of that evolved over the next 10 years. Uh, the FEMA trailers, that obviously is going to be prominently featured as we continue in the book, so there will be more on that to come as we roll. Um, let's see, first up, the Baton Rouge, the report of how the evacuees, black people uh, who were just trying to get to safety were further abused. So you got the Crescent City Bridge incident and now this, uh, in addition to all the other things that happened in New Orleans, Danziger Bridge incident and Danny Brumfield, Henry Glover, and these are just the ones that we know about. Um, I read a portion of that report because there was like a major report that came out about this, uh, about these orders and enforcement officers who were outside the state of Louisiana coming in and reporting this and various agencies, as you heard in the tech uh, text reporting this, they did like an investigation about this released a report where it gives more details and specific quotes and what have you. Um, I think I read that back in August uh, on the program when I found it. In fact, I think I found that from a uh, suspected race soldier. Uh, what is it? Gary Simon, the guy who does, uh, the wire and Treme and he's got another one. He was doing an interview and he was talking about uh, how that was one of the more detailed reports that came out about some of the uh, white barbarism uh, that took place uh, during, during and after uh, hurricane Katrina more of that to come as well. Uh, but yeah, I really thought that I'm glad he was able to include that uh, in the report. Uh, let's see. I even thought that was, uh, I thought that was significant because we talk about that all the time where, uh, referencing black people as animals and he says as a thank you gift another trooper said he was invited to beat down a black person in custody uh, which again to me just reinforces uh, this notion that practicing racism and terrorizing black people is supposed to be a fun and enjoyable thing for white people uh, and I totally agree I think it was Thomas in New York who has said that uh, how do you distinguish between uh, is this a black evacuee uh, or is this a black citizen of Baton Rouge who cares beat any nigger doesn't matter uh, the rent th that's going to come up I can <laughs> that's, that's going to be a big big theme uh, for the remainder of the book I suspect um, uh, again for folks to kind of keep in mind that uh, if there are characters that you think it would be constructive to hear from them pick them out uh, because Miss Brown with the New Orleans Tribune uh, she said she'd be down to help if she can. Um, she's in New Orleans and, you know, she knows she's a journalist. She knows people. Uh, she can help us nab anybody uh, that is a New Orleans resident. Uh, she can, you know, help hook us up. She would try to do that. So be on alert if there are any. Uh, Alden McDonald is already on the list. But if uh, there are any other folks that 
stick out that you think it would be cool to hear from let us know we'll see if we can get it done um let's see what else stuck out the the i guess conflict that they had about where the fema trailers were going to be placed and the powerful white people likely race soldiers in lakeview who didn't want the trailers there they resented the audacity the nerve of this nigger mayor to bring these niggers in our neighborhood and put their trailers here are you kidding you're gonna t- turn our neighborhood into some sort of nigger trailer park like just the audacity uh, of all of that now i mean this is 2005 right when people talk about this and my the nature of white people now i didn't hear anything about this a lot of this stuff uh, i didn't know about this back in 2005 and this is what i mean in terms of Uh, This was the whole reason why I wanted to do this book. I was not aware of there being a book that really gives you the nooks and the crannies. Like Mr. Fuller talks about the details. That's how you really get to get a thorough analysis of racism, white supremacy. This was, to my knowledge, the best book that could give you the nooks and crannies of how when people say that, you know, what happened with Hurricane Katrina, that this was a campaign of ethnic cleansing and genocide against black people. Well, let's get the details so we can walk that down over 10 years. I mean, wow. Uh, And I mean, if you put those two pieces together, we don't want you to have a FEMA trailer on the neutral. That's like the median, right? So I mean, it's not like you're in plush lakefront property. We don't, we don't want you to have a trailer after one of the most devastating storms in the history of the, or this area of the world, We don't want to help you to get a trailer. We don't want to help you get a place to stay. In fact, we would rather throw our trash and rubbish out on the grass to keep you niggers out of our neighborhood. I mean, wow, that's a whole nother level of pathology. And in my view, what I'm saying, if you take that bit of information in terms of how white people function there you can put that with the piece of information about the school situation we talked about at the beginning uh children not being able to get access there the price gouging uh of the rents the evictions that were going i mean just putting all of that together like wow this is what we're talking about i can't even get a fema trailer we're talking about turning the whole ninth ward new orleans east into marshland green space whatever for you black people i can't even get a trailer on a piece of dirt for myself and my family like wow wow irredeemably racist um let's see yeah they wanted to be preemptive even after he mayor uh nagin compromises on it and this would be another uh point if this is the mayor right he's supposed to be more powerful how is it that it always works out for the white people when they're able to come in and decide this that's what i mean about we should keep that in mind we are going to go at any non-white person who is really in charge who really is the most powerful person here and just everything that i've seen in this book everything i've seen in my studies ray nagin clearly was never at any point the most powerful person in the city of new orleans uh let's see and being preemptive uh with the trash dumping we're going to deliberately put our our rubbish out here to keep the negroes out just to make sure that they don't get any ideas about moving them over here. Uh, Greg Mafert. <laughs> I'm biting my tongue just because that's going to come up later about Greg Mafert, likely race soldier. We've been hearing about him. He was involved in getting the uh, 
the mayor of the tickets where he's talking about, I guess, this night where he's with some other white guy who's probably racist and they're having this uh, dispute about getting exactly what I just said, getting rid of the black people, this push to whiteify everything. I think that's a new word. I've never heard that one before. Uh, let's see. The children that really stuck with me when I read that, I'd never, that was another part that I had just not thought about before. Uh, and I guess I would just ask, I guess, listeners to think, even though I was, I am now a curmudgeon and <laughs> I have a bad attitude. I was like that as a child as well. So I didn't have a big attachment around like all the stuff that you're supposed to do, like senior year, going to prom and all the other goofy stuff uh, that people get excited about. I went, you know, to all this stuff, but I just didn't have the, yeah, we got to go do this. And this is, you know, one of our most, I just didn't have all that. But I mean, for most people, if you're going to school and you know, you're into all that stuff, you got all your friends. If you can just imagine being a senior in high school and all the stuff that you're looking forward to doing, and then bang, you get displaced. And I mean, some of these black children, they ended up in Utah, Washington state, California. I mean, even if you, you know, stay in Louisiana, just imagine the trauma of that on top of losing everything. It was reports. They had some that came out within the last couple of weeks when they were doing the review where it was uh they're older now obviously but they were remembering they went to these schools and people were asking them you know did you loot anything during the storm and being the butt of all of these just crude jokes uh about the storm and what happened to you and tell us about katrina did you loot? i mean just you can't even imagine i think there was a book that just came out dealing that's specifically focused on the trauma that black children went through uh, during Katrina, if you press me on it, uh, somebody could probably get the title, but I think it just came out uh, in September. But I, that was something I hadn't really thought of. And that's what I mean about the details, the layers of trauma uh, that happened. It's just it's, it's almost too much to even comprehend um, the Gretna Bridge. And yeah, well, that will that will come up again later. I'll bring that up then. Um, I also thought it was very significant them. Uh, I think the first spot that they were talking about in New Orleans, uh, the first, uh, I guess, area that they designated for the FEMA trailers being next to a juvenile detention facility. I mean, this is the way that we think of you. I think we talked about that in the last book, Cuffy, always thinking of confining, detaining, caging black people. Always, always, always. Uh, the thing with, uh, I think that's going to come up later. I will, <laughs> I'm having a hard time making sure I don't get ahead of myself in the text. Um, I will stop where it says 93% of those in the Houston shelter. It was said in this book, but just to corroborate uh, the book that I just finished, uh, the deluge, the great deluge by Doug Brinkley. He's also a suspected racist uh, where he said the same thing. Uh, he was talking about once the black people, the folks that ended up going to Houston to uh, the Reliance center uh, where white officials went there and they heard all these reports like, Oh my God, this is, Bin Laden's cousins are, you know, stampeding through New Orleans and they're robbing and looting and pillaging and raping white women. And, oh, my God. And he said he got there and he saw these people and he said, oh, my God, this is a disgrace. <laughs> these look just like bedraggled and beaten down people who have nothing <laughs> and are dehydrated and miserable. Like, I don't see anything menacing at all. I just see an absolute disgrace in people that need immense help that was all he could say like i just I, I could not believe what i saw uh that this was allowed to happen in this area of the world he had the exact same commentary uh and i guess i'll last one there is a documentary 
uh, if you're just talking about the people that left New Orleans. I don't know if this is coming up uh, in the text or not, but it seems like it's not. If you're just interested in following some of the things that happened to uh, evacuees who went really, really far from New Orleans, like they got sent to Utah and other places. I think it's called uh, Desert Bayou, I think is is the name of it. It's about an hour and a half, and it follows, I think it's about 500 black people that got sent to Utah in the evacuation incredible a lot of the same thing that you heard here and children adjusting families trying to get jobs and all that they put them on a military base gave them a curfew it's uh it's amazing uh if you want to check that out it is available i think it's online you can check that out uh we have about seven eight minutes left if other folks have commentary that they would like to share feel free uh if anything else stuck out anything that we missed uh previously feel free Oh, wait a minute before uh, you all though call her at uh, 6190-6190. Did you have commentary? Yes, um, this is Perseverance. Um, you know, as I hear this book more and more, it, it sounds like the people of New Orleans, that war was declared against them, and the weapon was depravity and, of course, the levees breaking. Um, nobody's really talking about, well, you're talking about the trauma. Um, but, you know, we're not really, I don't, it's hard to really grasp what those people really saw and went through. Because I remember seeing um, Spike Lee's documentary, and he was saying that there were um, alligators in the water. So seeing you know, kids seeing their grandparents eaten up by um, alligators and, you know, babies drowning and, you know, kids being separated and all this. This is very traumatic. And, you know, as as you're describing it, um, it's almost worse than, like, being in Iraq is what I'm imagining in my mind. And at least the people, the soldiers in Iraq, um, they have supplies to survive these people aren't given anything. And on top of that, they're, you know, juggled around. Um, I know some of the survivors ended up in Denver, and some of my relatives said, you know, when they were out there, they tore up things, and, you know, people really didn't want them around. Well, of course they're going to act out because they just survived. You know, they were just traumatized and you know, when you don't have any therapy, you don't have any positive outlets, what are you going to do? You're going to drink, you're going to use drugs, you're going to act out, you know, especially if nobody's giving you a job or helping you, you know, come up with a plan um, or what you're going to do, you know, after your house, you know, you know, men have to get back to work, kids have to get back to school, and like you said, they're different, other kids are probably not accepting them, um, but it's just very tragic to hear this, and I heard something about McFert this um, during this reading, and I remember when we heard about him before. He, you know, he had, he had blue, he had blue eyes and blonde hair. Seems like the writer is really trying to um, kind of show him as a hero, and you know, which I think is um, an act of racism in itself. Um, but I, I don't want to say I enjoyed this book, but it's just very informative. Because it's nothing enjoyable about, you know, hearing about our people's pain. But it is very informative and it's a good read. Thank you for letting me share. For sure. For sure. Uh, Anybody else have comments they wanted to get in before we get to the second audio clip? Got about three, four minutes left. 
Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, one other point that shows the dedication to uh, white supremacy is that the book said that two weeks after Katrina, the Gretna City Council unanimously approved the resolution supporting the chief of police decision to deny access to the city of Gretna. Signs started popping up on lawns around town. We support Chief Loss. So it's almost like they were just, you know, rubbing it in even after, you know, they, it was discovered that they were illegally blocking, blocking that bridge. And then for the media not to bring it out and, you know, show the incorrectness of this, that was an act of racism also. I mute my line to that. About another two minutes. Anybody else? Anything else you can get in in two minutes or folks satisfied? folks uh, are satisfied. I saw a uh, report this week. I think there were some elementary, black elementary school children in New York and allegedly a staff member, white staff member, uh, encouraged them to not sit together uh, because uh, or I think it was the white staff member encouraged them to sit with other white students because people would think that they were a gang if all the little black elementary school children sat together. Uh, and the portion uh, in the book when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's constant, another standard operating procedure, criminalization of black, gotta be a gang. They come out that way. Potential looter right there at uh, fifth grade, uh, where he said authorities laid out a strict set of rules that had evacuee kids staying after school for infractions that didn't earn local kids the same punishment. We were seen as the trouble children, Townsend said, They were even forbidden from sitting together in the cafeteria because Townsend said we were known as the Nala gang. Um, Again, if you can just imagine being 15, 16, 17, confused about racism, white supremacy and astronomically traumatized. If you, you know, had family or friends uh, that died or were injured, harmed in the storm, you lost things, lost your house, whatever the case may be, uh, you left, uh, they were, they had some of the children who wrote about things that happened to them and they were talking about they left, exactly as he said in the book, they left thinking, oh, we'll be back in two, three days, so they left and took like a small backpack of a few things and lost everything, <laughs> lost, I mean, literally everything, didn't even have a residence to go back to and this was their academic year. I mean, I cannot even begin to imagine how that impacts your development uh, as a black child in a system of white supremacy. It's just uh, staggering. Like I said, there's uh, more literature uh, that examines that and, and the impact that that had. I'm sure some more that will come out in the book. Anywho, uh, we will get to the second audio uh, segment. We're in the middle of Chapter 14. Uh, if folks had commentary you didn't get to share, Uh, Just make a note, and we should have ample time for folks to uh, comment once the second audio clip concludes. Uh, So this is uh, 
Gary Rivlin, Katrina, after the flood. So the portion where we just ended is uh, Joe Conazaro. How does a wealthy white Republican from the suburbs come to decide the future of New Orleans low-lying neighborhoods? That's what we left off at. So this is where we're picking up at, which some of this I think 404 mentioned uh, in her commentary already. This is the context of white supremacy audio segment number two. Finding workers was difficult in a city still without most of its residents. The big debris removal companies passed out flyers in central New Orleans promising $17 to $20 an hour plus benefits. Those willing to swing a sledgehammer gutting a home or business could earn nearly that much. Burger King was offering a $6,000 signing bonus at its New Orleans outlets and rallies a local restaurant chain nearly doubled its pay to $10 an hour for new employees. The city's hotels, claiming they were understaffed at a time virtually every room was booked for the foreseeable future, even won the right to import workers from overseas under a special government guest worker program. Boise Bollinger, who ran one of the country's largest shipbuilders, was more aggressive than most in his search for workers. That September, Bollinger sent recruiters to FEMA camps across several states, yet still fell 600 employees short of the number he needed to meet his orders. He blamed FEMA. What incentive did potential employees have, he wanted to know, when they were living on FEMA's dime? Bollinger even argued the point with George Bush. I told the president, I think you're empowering people to stay where they are, Bollinger said. He said he wasn't sure a $2,000 check meant someone was living it up. Bollinger was a large man with a jowly face and gray hair he wore on the long side. He would dress up for commission meetings, sporting a blue blazer with an American flag pin, but invariably the bottom of his trousers would be up by his knees, showing off a pair of black alligator boots. When I talk, people think I'm from New Jersey or Philadelphia, Bollinger said, but I'm from the swamp. He was from Lafouche Parish, an hour south and west of New Orleans. Under Bollinger's edict, an employee of Bollinger Shipyards returned to work immediately or was given two weeks severance and lost all health benefits at the end of the month. We used termination as an incentive to get them back, Bollinger said. But Bollinger seemed to be fighting a losing battle. The welder he paid $17 an hour could earn $25 an hour hanging sheetrock. He needed to raise wages if he wanted to compete, but then there'd be no profit left, he claimed, in the deals he had already signed. Instead, Bollinger walked away from $700 million in contracts, though he had devoted part of the previous two years securing them. I can make you a list three miles long of things the government is doing to hinder our attempts to get back and operating, he groused three months after Katrina. Lakeview got its power and other utilities before New Orleans East or most of the other low-lying neighborhoods. It was still October when Robert Lupo, who owned more commercial real estate in Lakeview than anyone else, 
hired a crew to clean out his properties along Harrison Avenue, the community's main business strip. They brought their own food, their own water, plus showering and cooking gear, Lupo said. New Orleans East wasn't completely dead that November, despite a lack of electricity. Sporadically, a visitor would hear the beeping of a backhoe or see other pieces of heavy equipment at work. Those are FEMA contractors, Alden McDonald explained, clearing away rubble. Every half dozen or so blocks, a group of workers, invariably all of them Latino, would be gutting a home. McDonald didn't know what he was going to do about his house. Neither did Cassandra Wall. But the longer a home sat untouched, the more it would deteriorate. Both were among those out in the East putting up the $10,000 or so it cost to clear out their ruined belongings and also the waterlogged sheetrock that provided nourishment for the mold. We wanted to keep our options open, McDonald said. At least people out in the East and in Lakeview had options. Negan's look-and-leave edict, the mayor's plan for staggering access to the city's worst-hit neighborhoods and therefore not overwhelming a fragile city, was still in effect. Even two months after Katrina, armed soldiers were still posted at the bridges leading into the Lower Ninth Ward. Not even those who could prove they lived there prior to the storm would be allowed past a checkpoint. Not until December 1st did the city lift the lockdown and grant residents of the Lower Ninth access to their homes. A few residents managed to get past the barricades prior to the neighborhood's official opening. Greta Gladney, who runs a nonprofit in the Lower Ninth, hitched a ride with a journalist whose press pass allowed them in. Two main arteries bisect the Lower Ninth, Claiborne and St. Claude Avenues. The homes north of Claiborne were closest to the levee breach. These homes had been decimated, but not her mother's home in the middle of the Lower Ninth, between Claiborne and St. Claude, nor most of the homes on the other side of St. Claude, closer to the river. Aside from that area north of Claiborne, the Lower Ninth looked like much of the rest of New Orleans. And also like St. Bernard's Parish, whose predominantly white working-class suburbs began just on the other side of Delray Street, less than 10 blocks away from the home where Gladney grew up. There in St. Bernard, you could see the occasional house pushed off a foundation or a car leaning against a tree. Telephone poles and wires were dangling on either side of Delray. Yet its parish leader didn't bar residents from access to their homes once the waters receded. It was the people with means who got back to the city first, and they were the ones making the decisions, Gladney said. Not until May was drinking water turned back on. The electricity wasn't restored until June. The Lower Ninth seemed last on everyone's list for everything, she said. Nearly 2,000 people showed up on the December day the city reopened the neighborhood. Among them was Willie Calhoun Jr., 
a 55-year-old airport inspector and part-time minister who had lived in the Lower Ninth his whole life. His journey that day began with an armed National Guardsman checking his ID. A city official warned a group of them about the extremely dangerous conditions and the Red Cross passed out gloves, masks, water, and ice. Once on the other side of the bridge, Calhoun noticed that the FEMA contractors cleaning up other parts of New Orleans had spent almost no time on the lower ninth side of the industrial canal. A wasted three months, Calhoun told himself. For most, the visit confirmed the obvious. In a neighborhood of one-story shotguns and cottages that had taken on as much as 20 feet of water, there was little to salvage. People would find a bowl or a favorite piece of jewelry and call out. One woman found a framed picture of a son who had died a decade earlier. Despite the loss, Calhoun proclaimed the day joyous. You saw neighbors you hadn't seen in the last three months, he said. You saw people you had heard had died. He also saw, finally, progress. With the opening of the Lower Ninth, a Rubicon had been crossed. Insurance adjusters could now work up estimates. The FEMA crews could start clearing the streets. If nothing else, the authorities could at least remove the enormous steel barge that sat on top of a block of pulverized homes in the neighborhood. I was still naive enough at that point to think the city really wanted to help us come back, Calhoun said. A few weeks after Katrina, Congress had approved a $62 billion emergency relief package for the Gulf Coast. That would cover the cost of the early rescue efforts, including the deployment of thousands of troops to the area and also the housing bills for all those hundreds of thousands of people made homeless by Katrina. In Mississippi, Governor Haley Barber had declared 47 of the state's 82 counties disaster areas. Some of that $62 billion would be used to reimburse each for overtime and other storm-related costs. The same would happen in a large part of Louisiana. The bulk of the money would be used to help rebuild the roads, public buildings, and other essential infrastructure covered under rules established long before Katrina. The question for Washington to answer was how much more money, if any, the region would receive to help with the rebuilding. Early on, Louisiana's two senators had put together an aid package for the region and were mocked inside the Beltway. The $35 million they earmarked for a seafood marketing campaign provided cocktail party fodder, as did the $25 million for a sugarcane research laboratory and the $8 million for the state's alligator farms. Their package included $40 billion for levy repairs and another $50 billion for unspecified projects the government would fund through a massive community development grant. In all, the bill called on the government to commit a combined $250 billion more in federal aid for the Gulf Coast recovery. I think everybody realizes the Christmas tree was a little 
heavily ornamented Boise Bollinger said after the package's introduction. Some in Congress were convinced the federal government was wasting taxpayer money rebuilding New Orleans. Others were disinclined to entrust so much money to a state where officials were known for enriching themselves and their friends. Louisiana and New Orleans are the most corrupt governments in our country and they always have been, Senator Larry Craig, a Republican from Idaho, told a home state newspaper in December. That was 18 months before the wider world would hear after his arrest at the Minneapolis St. Paul Airport about the wide stance he takes in a bathroom stall. As a preemptive measure, Blanco said, the state hired a pair of accounting firms to help watch for corruption. We hired auditors to audit other auditors, Blanco said. The approaching close to the congressional session added to the urgency felt by advocates for the Gulf Coast. The short-term attention span of the media was one worry the roots people were putting down whether they'd ended up another. Forgotten already was the headline over the editorial the Times-Picayune ran on its front page in mid-November. A few days later, Bobby Jindal shared his frustrations in an interview with the New York Times. Every day that passes, it will be a little harder to get things done, said Jindal, who had been elected to Congress from the New Orleans suburbs two years after losing to Blanco for governor. Even Haley Barber, despite his place at the front of any line, voiced his displeasure. We are at a point where our recovery and renewal efforts are stalled because of inaction in Washington, D.C., Barber told some of several congressional panels looking in to the federal government's response to Katrina. Another Republican Party stalwart, Bob Livingston, told the Los Angeles Times, Here we are in month four of a terrible, terrible tragedy, and other than hotel rooms and meals ready to eat and some reconstruction, we haven't gotten squat. The former Republican congressman turned high-priced lobbyist added, I'm ready to start a revolution. The Corps' early estimates put the price of a Category 5 storm protection system at $32 billion, eight times its annual budget. The Bush administration responded with $4 million for a study to put forward alternatives. The study would be due back to Congress by the end of 2007, more than two years later. The Baker bill, while popular among local officials, had critics on both the left and the right. On the left, people questioned a bill that proposed to provide 60% of the worth of a home when they saw the levy failures as 100% the federal government's fault. On the right, they wondered why the federal taxpayer should be expected to pick up any of the bill when the government already funded a flood insurance program. Congress recessed for the year without even considering the Baker bill. They would need to start over again in January. We are about to lose New Orleans. The New York Times began an editorial that ran 
in the Sunday paper in mid-December. Whether it's a conscious plan to let the city rot or honest paralysis over difficult questions, the moment is upon us when a major American city will die. If the rest of the nation has decided it is too expensive to give the people of New Orleans a chance at renewal, we have to tell them so. We must tell them we spent our rainy day fund on a costly stalemate in Iraq that we gave it away in tax cuts for wealthy families and shareholders. We must tell them America is too broke and too weak to rebuild one of its great cities. Chapter 15 A Smaller, Taller City Joe Conazaro was exhausted. I've been overwhelmed fully, he confided on New Year's Day 2006. He had Curtis, his house manager, and also Sue Ellen, but who was there to help him run his businesses while he was preoccupied figuring out how much of the city they should rebuild. His bank, called First Bank and Trust, demanded the most attention. He had outposts in Biloxi and Gulfport, two of the Gulf Coast's hardest-hit towns, and it had losses on investments in New Orleans properties. Like Alden McDonald, Conazaro felt the pressures of the nervous regulators examining his books. It's a lot right now, he confessed. Fatigue put Conazaro in an expansive mood on the first day of the new year. He expressed disappointment in decisions that had already been made and also in decisions that had been put off. Every expert said the same thing. The city couldn't afford to rebuild every last neighborhood. He cited the RAND study showing no more than 60% of the city's population returning at the three-year mark. It doesn't take a genius to figure if you're missing 40% of your original population, then there's going to be shrinkage in the amount of land that's going to be needed. Yet Conazaro said he was unwilling to pass a death sentence on any part of the city. The racial implications would be too great. Unfortunately, a lot of poor African Americans had everything they own destroyed here, he said. So we have to be careful about dictating what's going to happen, especially me as a white man. They would discourage people from moving back into areas that might well flood again, he said, but they wouldn't forbid anyone from rebuilding. Conazaro had tried to elicit input from each of his fellow commissioners. Instead, they seemed relieved that he, not they, would have to make the decision. The commission really saw it as Joe's job to come up with a plan for the neighborhoods. Tulane's Scott Cohen said, Yet Conazaro wasn't going to reach a decision on his own. He and Ray Manning, the man chosen to serve as his co-chair, had handpicked 26 people to serve on the commission's urban planning committee and another 50-plus people were serving on various subcommittees, historic preservation, zoning, housing. Conazaro had also opened his checkbook to buy the services of a well-regarded planning firm based in Philadelphia. A realization came to Conazaro after the ULI left town. These outside experts were correct to categorize neighborhoods based on damage, 
but they had it upside down. People in the city's hardest hit neighborhoods, the people who most needed help, should be the top priority. In the coming weeks, a plan took shape. Conazaro would recommend that the federal government give New Orleans money to hire teams of planners and other experts to help the residents of each flooded neighborhood decide whether to rebuild or relocate. Let people see the pluses and minuses of moving back home, Conazaro said. With these planning teams, you'll help people make an informed decision. They debated whether to provide four months or a year to convince a critical mass of a neighborhood's residents to move home. A buyout program along the lines of the Baker Plan would be created to compensate communities who concluded they couldn't make it work. What's important is we give people an opportunity to determine their own future, Kanazaro said. Kanazaro felt anxious after laying out his plan in a phone conversation he had with Carl Rove between Christmas and New Year's. Carl left me realizing we needed to do a better job of packaging and selling the plan, Kanazaro said. Don't say they were hiring these experts to help residents figure out which parts of the city needed to be reverted to swampland, Rove suggested. Instead, say they were there to help increase the odds of a community's success for those residents who wanted to return. If nothing else, Kanazaro's talk with Rove helped him realize details still had to be worked out. That Saturday, they were holding the final meeting of the Urban Planning Committee so Kanazaro would be ready to share his plan with others at Mel Lagarde's house that Monday. On Wednesday, he would be presenting their recommendations to the public at a giant ballroom inside the Sheraton. The Urban Planning Committee met Saturday in Kanazaro's offices on the 17th floor of a brown marble tower on Poydras. The floors were a dark hardwood. The furniture, antiques, the art on the wall, expensive works dating back to the 16th and 17th centuries. Marble sculptures and priceless-looking urns were perched on pedestals along the hallways. Kanazaro had asked some of his people to work that day to direct people to the big conference room in back and to provide photocopying or other support. A nearly all-male, all-white group gathered around a large conference table for the 1 p.m. meeting. Of the 20 or so people seated around the table, two were black and one was Indian American. Curtis was there, dressed in a starched white shirt and black suit. He served people tea and coffee and other refreshments. Kanazaro, short with a square face, a strong jaw, and brown eyes, sat at the head of the table. He was dressed in a plaid sweater vest over a yellow dress shirt, chinos, and tasseled loafers. Kanazaro opened by telling everyone about his conversation with Rove. The goal here is to accentuate the positive. He spoke in a clipped, authoritative manner that suggested a man accustomed to giving orders. The script they had worked out had Kanazaro saying a few words of introduction at Wednesday's meeting and then turning the program over to John Beckman 
of Wallace, Roberts, and Todd, the Philadelphia-based planning firm Conazaro had enlisted. Beckman, who was sitting near Conazaro at the front of the table, stood to talk. Beckman, thin, bespeckled, white, with unkempt hair, had decades of planning experience in New Orleans, including a hand in the city's successful creation of its warehouse district. Beckman began offering inspirational words about the task which they had all been burdened, but Conazaro, irritated, cut him off. Just get on with it. Later, Conazaro reminded his fellow committee members that they all had a vote, except his vote counted a hundred times more than theirs. It was funny the way he said it, but the crack also left no doubt that they were there just to help the boss make up his mind. The group argued over words and images as Beckman walked them through the PowerPoint presentation. They were recommending that the city give every community four months to hammer out a plan. Conazaro wanted to describe the process as efficient, but some suggested equitable, as more warm and fuzzy and less cold and calculating. Those around the table generally agreed that the slide deck minimized the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity the city had to remake its park system. New Orleans had two spectacular signature parks in Audubon and City, but otherwise precious little green space. Words were added. Now is the time many people want to sell property, and so it's a win-win situation for everyone. Partway through Beckman's dry run, an image flashed on the screen. An artist's rendition of the Lower Ninth Ward, showing the kind of mixed-use developments, retail, housing, community space, they hoped would pop up over the flooded parts of New Orleans. As people around the table imagined it, parts of the Lower Ninth and every other flooded community would revert to marshland. Meanwhile, the glimpse of the community shown looked like a kind of new urbanism pipe dream. Two and three-story handsome brick buildings, a new light rail stop, and storefronts along a tree-lined boulevard dense with happy shoppers. Change it to the historic Lower Ninth, some suggested. Early on, Conazaro had decided that they would use the Lower Ninth to show that you can take one of the worst communities and show how it has a brilliant future. In the end, the group convinced him it would be wiser not to single out any neighborhood. Beckman reached the end of his presentation and Conazaro invited comments from people around the table. Prez Kabakov was there, the developer whom Barbara Major mistrusted because he never mentioned how his altruistic projects would also make him money. Kabakov had been all over the media talking about his idea for a smaller, taller city. Firms such as his would convert old factories into condominiums or hives for interesting businesses, where they found empty lots or buildings that needed to be torn down, they would infill the commercial strips and other blighted spots 
with mixed-use developments and mixed-income developments that would let them take advantage of government programs. Kabakov had dubbed his plan Operation Rebirth, but invariably he would bring up Paris when stating his goal of a New Orleans that offered visitors 50 to 100 walkable blocks. This working for you, Prez? Canazaro asked several times during the afternoon. You see everything here that gets in the way of your Paris thing? Kabakov, his gray hair in a small ponytail, would nod, indicating that all was good. Another Canazaro favorite around the table was Reed Kroloff, the dean of Tulane's architecture school. Kroloff, who was white, had only been in New Orleans a year, and he would be gone 18 months later when he moved to Michigan for a different posting. He spoke more frequently than anyone else except Canazaro and Beckman. One question was how blunt they should be in expressing their belief that some communities, or at least large parts of some communities, shouldn't come back. It depends on how much dancing around you want to do, Kroloff advised. Canazaro said he thought they needed to say that not every community would be coming back. Kroloff met him with a smile and said, We all saw ULI give a logical, reasonable, well-thought-out presentation of a very logical, well-thought-out plan, and we then all watched them run into a buzzsaw. Canazaro, they agreed, should say that there would be people disappointed at the outcome of their four-month planning process. During the four months, communities were supposed to be coming up with a plan should they impose a temporary moratorium on any development there. The committee agreed that communities, rather than imposing a ban, should discourage homeowners from rebuilding in the hardest-hit areas. They imagined two kinds of communities in the flooded zone those able to draw a critical mass of people and those that couldn't. But what was critical mass? 50% of the people in a neighborhood giving a verbal commitment to rebuild? 70%? I'm one who likes to be definitive, Kanazaro said. But that really sets you up as a target. They would leave the phrase ambiguous. Another debate broke out over how much money they would request to fund the land bank the city would need to create in order to purchase properties in neighborhoods that decided to right-size themselves for the new New Orleans. $20 billion? Someone asked. Canazaro declared that too big a number, but they never settled on a more palatable figure. People were getting testy. Participants vied to be heard. More than three hours into the meeting, Someone mentioned the renters. Nearly 70,000 rentals had been ruined by Katrina, but their plan did not provide any help for tenants. At that, one person threw up his arms, another ostentatiously rolled her eyes. A suggestion that the committee go on record as demanding that the Baker Bill provide people with 100% compensation for damaged properties rather than 60% evoked a similar reaction. Near 5 p.m., Reed Kroloff asked about building permits in the hardest-hit areas. It was one thing to discourage rather than forbid people from rebuilding 
during planning, but it seemed crazy to have the city sanction projects with permits. But Kanazaro, who had several times mentioned the late hour, was out of time. My wife's going to kill me if I don't get home. He told Curtis to get the car and be ready for him downstairs. He and Sue Ellen had dinner plans. And that will wrap us up for this week. Uh, we will be back next week. Chapter 15. Uh, we are about at the halfway point in the book. Uh, maybe a hair below, but pretty much uh, all intents and purposes. Halfway through Katrina after the flood. If folks have uh, commentary, things that stood out that you would like to share, feel free to chime in. Uh, we should have ample time if you didn't get to share during the first portion. Uh, the number to dial, 641-715-3640. The code is 564 nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate question i will ask before i, I dump it over you can feel free to comment if you know you have no thoughts on it don't worry about it share whatever uh, other things stood out to you but my question i'll throw out there uh and we ended with curtis once again that even confirmed that yes i definitely need to make sure that i ask uh, Joe Conazaro, uh, when he's mentioned, uh, Mr. Rivlin mentions Curtis as well. He's brought him up repeatedly uh, as we have been reading the text, uh, how they left him behind when they evacuated for the storm. Uh, and he keeps calling uh, Mr. and Mrs. Conazaro to, oh, the water's, you know, in the, in the house now. And I had to move up to the second floor. And all that it keeps mentioning that poor black Curtis uh, is there to take care of this likely family of racists why do you think uh curtis's character is included in the text like for what purpose does that serve this is not fiction this is not a novel so why is he consistently uh keeping us informed about what curtis is up to whether he's getting the car or serving tea and crumpets or whatever else uh he's doing why is curtis in this book at all uh if you have comments on that Please feel free to share. If you don't, that's fine, too. But everybody who dialed in with a hand up, uh, lines should be open. Feel free to chime in. May I be questioned? Yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Oh, okay. I just wanted to say that everyone was able to make money off of this except for the people who lost the most. Um, they had the nerve to bring in workers from other countries, you know, and then on top of that, all this money that was donated and raised never got to the people who need, uh, really needed it. Um, I remember hearing Dr. Wilson say this week, when you deny, you know, a man the ability to work and support his um, family, that that's a crime and that's terrorism. Um, and so that's definitely what's going on here. You know, once again, um, that economic, um, that economic war, you know, that they wage against us by not providing jobs and not providing ways that people could get their family back, you know, back together again. 
Um, I remember in the earlier reading, Cannizzaro was associated with the mafia. You know, and that's like the hidden, you know, part of white supremacy. I, I think it's like the bridge between the legal money and corporate gain. So that's all I needed to know about Cannizzaro is, you know, the mafia connection and everything after that is you already know what that is. So um, let me just see. Um, and once again, this part of the reading pointed out how whites are concerned and fixated on objects and things such as the building and skyscrapers and this, that, and the other, but they not they are not concerned about humanity. And that's how this writer is writing this book. You hardly ever hear about humanity. Everything is about things and objects. And, you know, once again, I think that's part of, you know, racism. Um, and that's all I want to say. I, I meet my line. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, all the other folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Um, Mr. Demi for, uh, karma, uh, 404. I think, uh, Thomas in New York should be with us as well. If you all had comments as well, feel free. Uh, you're a little distant. Uh, I don't know if it's a volume thing or if you're, Oh, Oh, that's better. Is this better? Yes, ma'am. Okay, sorry about that. I had it on the speaker. Uh, yes, I must concur with the um, caller that just spoke about the obsession that white people have with property and things and not with human life. And that shows how they have this disregard for the environment. And then they always want to run to the forefront and say that they want to save the planet and save wildlife and everything else, but they are never focused on saving human life, especially if that human life happened to be black, people of color. But, so, this thing, and you ask about why the author keeps mentioning the house servant, the black house servant of Mr. Canazaro, I think he wants to show that Mr. Canazaro is a man of means, and he is not racist, because here it is that he has this black man working for him, and he's a loyal employee, and he always keeps up with Mr. Canazaro to, you know, to keep him informed of his property. And it's also that um, neocolonial type mentality where they have the houseboy, you know, somebody to wait on them and to take care of their basic needs as a risk of your life. That's that, that image of Stephen Django that we have where he would risk his own life just to save the property of his white owner. And that's the kind of imagery they're pushing along with this black person who almost risked drowning in order to save himself and instead of um, leaving to save his life, but he wants to keep up with calling this man and giving him a play-by-play as to what's going on with property. And that's just obsession because, you see, once again, they've already made up their mind. They've already started chasing at the base, saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. We don't want these people to come back. But... We want to find a good way of saying that the majority of them are not coming back. We we have our sights on this property in the lower night, but we have got to find a tactful way of telling these people so it doesn't create a mass hysteria. So you can see the planning is already in the works because, as you said, he has audited his property. He has seen the, the kind of sorrow. He has seen that he has quite substantiated some losses as a result of this flood. So now he wants to build back up his financial portfolio 
And the quickest way for him to do so is to take over this property in the lower nine by telling these people they can't come back in, they can't rebuild, and now he could come in and get it in at dirt cheap. The other thing that you were mentioning, this other guy um, in the alligator boots who was running around here, you know, he, he was really cutthroat with, um, with his employees, telling them if they don't come back to work, he was going to cut them off cut off their benefits or whatever. So here it is that these people went through such a trauma, lost their home, displaced and everything, tried to get settled, but yet still you wanted you, you wanted to come in and work, but you don't want to pay them all. Even though the salary is good, you pay them 17 an hour, but in other places it's up in the $25 range. You don't want to go up because you want about profits once again. He's about safeguarding profits, so he's not going to increase their pay. And if they don't show up, He's going to cut them off, let them go. And so that's how, that's, that's what the hammer that he has over their head to say, if they really want a job, you better come back here, do this job, and you know, just go from there. And as the others mentioned also, as I mentioned, with the importation of these foreign workers that they brought in for dirt cheap. Here it is that you have displaced black people living in these outlying areas that you could have um, hired to come back in, and they would be more than willing to work and build back up their community. But no, you don't want these people in there because the whole idea is they should not come back in. So you go and you hire all of these people from outside, all of these so-called Latino Hispanics to come in here, import workers, even went to the trouble of going to the State Department to get them these work visas for them to come in here to do the work for cheap. Just because the whole idea, once again, is black people needs to get out of New Orleans. You want them gone and this is your impetus to get them out of there. So this is displaying a very, very um, high level of economic terrorism that is being done to these black people in order to take their property, in order to displace them permanently and get them gone, even though the government is giving money out in order which in which for these people to relocate and get some sort of assistance. But these developers, they want to control that money and use that money to confiscate and take these people's property. I'll pause here and let the others get in. Right on, right on. Other uh, folks have commentary? Mr. Demery for uh, I think that's Karma. Yes, I'd like to make a couple of points. Uh, one is that Alden McDonald explained that uh, clearing away the rubble and getting the uh, workers to vet out the homes, that most of them would be Latino. And these would be the same Mexican workers that Ray Nagin had made the uh, comment about earlier. But <clears throat> anyway, uh, you know, it looks like the urban planning committee it just seems to me that uh, the mayor would be there but it didn't look like it unless he was counted as one of the two black men and I thought maybe one of the black men were, was probably the the guy you mentioned that was with Kanazaro uh, the black guy that was Curtis <laughs> yeah that was uh I wonder if he was counted as one of the two black men, but, you know, uh, you know that's obvious. 
uh, racism. And you got Camazaro sitting at the head of the table and calling all the shots. <laughs> it's a meeting, but it's going to go the way he wanted it to go anyway. And so it's interesting that at first they didn't even want to build on the ninth ward. And then it sounded like by the end of the meeting, he was thinking about urban renewal at the ninth ward. So that was kind of confused. But uh, that's about all I got. But I'll mute my line. other folks have comments uh, if you're listening in and you have comments uh, please don't wait till the last minute I think uh, we might have missed somebody last week uh, if you're listening and you think you have something you want to share go ahead and get your hand up uh, don't wait you know, until we have two minutes left and, and decide you want to get your uh, commentary in um, with, uh, with regards to Curtis uh, I am going to ponder that because I'm processing it I don't know how most people would read this in terms of, of Curtis's role, uh, what this says about Conasaro, how like how I'm supposed to what am I supposed to think about this arrangement and, and what it calls to mind. Does it make you think of the help? Does it make you think of, you know, driving Miss Daisy, going with the wind, history of, of exploitation of uh black labor? Um, I don't know how the reader processes that i don't even i don't even know why rivlin included it like is that supposed to have you thinking that oh this is that plantation mentality is an operation and he likes to have uh, a black servant around uh to remind him of of having black people in a subservient and a weak position that just do his bidding all day long and you know will drown in toxic sludge to you know defend and keep an eye on his property while he's thousands of miles away and you know the safety of his cottage wherever he happens to be at on his private plane and what have you like i'm just i'm not sure uh i'm not i'm just not sure like if that was just you know i did my comprehensive research right and i just want to include because curtis is a real person and he was there some of this so i'm just including it or if there's another purpose i have to kind of see uh if his presence continues and you know how I, what I think about it as it proceeds, but if folks have comments on that, you can write in or other folks who didn't share, feel free to let me know what you, what you think about Curtis and his presence in the book. Uh, I also think in terms of the discouraging black people, uh, when it talks, when he wrote about how black people in the ninth ward, like that was the last section of this look and leave policy where you can't stay on your property. You can come in to assess damage, but you got to go through checkpoints. They might let you in. They might not. Do you have ID? Do we accept your ID and all of that? Uh, that is a part of the discouraging process. Uh, I don't know if that was karma's uh, theory from some years back, uh, but the one about having uh, enforcement officers there to harass and, and just, really get on your nerves and annoy you so that that will drive you off almost like what we heard in the last chapter in baton rouge in my opinion that's just a, another example of the same strategy uh so people can't get back to even see if they have a residence left uh what the state of things is just to make it so difficult for you to get back into the city for you to get information to get resources uh just that is a part of that discouraging process uh, and uh, what I've been saying the whole time, this is a military operation 
uh, and every aspect of it. I think even Thomas reiterated that earlier in the program and saying that this was like a prison situation, a hostage situation. You got armed white men with M-16s, <laughs> military uh, personnel uh, camped out and telling you where to go and looking at you all tough, even if you're a black press person. I'm not even a, you know, quote unquote evacuee. I'm just here uh, with the press doing my job as a journalist and I'm being, you know, looked at tough and what are you doing? Get, you know, I mean, that's military operation uh, is what this should be, the way we should be thinking about this, in my opinion. Um, words. Whoa. <laughs> when they're talking about how they're going to verbalize, how they're going to articulate uh, this military operation that's going to end up resulting in 100,000 fewer black citizens in New Orleans, uh, where they say they got together and the group argued over words and images as Beckman walked them through a PowerPoint presentation. They were recommending that the city give every community four months to hammer out a plan. Kanazara wanted to describe the process as efficient, but some suggested equitable as a more warm and fuzzy and less cold and calculating. I thought that was incredible portion. By the way, I am reading the Kendall section this week and nothing, not one sentence of anything that we've read this week uh, got a significant amount of highlights. I've said before uh, for Kendall, if like four or five people highlight the same section, it will show up. So you'll just get an annotation in the text that says, oh, OK. And people that read this book, four or five people or nine or 20 people uh, thought that this section was worthy of being, you know, highlighted. Nothing we've read this week uh, got any of those annotations like so, you know, anyway. Um, but that portion right there, I thought was huge in terms of the wording, the importance of words and rhetorical ethic. I think we talked about that with Marimba Ani, how white people know how to use words that sound like we're doing the right thing. Everybody, it's going to be an equitable recovery <laughs> to, to make it sound like, oh, this is going to be great. They're going to be doing it right. Green space. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. They know all the cool ways to package terrorism so you have no idea until it's too late that oh wait a minute this is this wasn't equitable at all this was racial cleansing is what this was uh, but i thought that portion was huge um let's see Curtis, let's see what else the portion where neely fuller jr he consistently says justice making sure the people who need the most help get the most help Every time that was not happening in New Orleans. And that's a thing, not just in this book where they talked about before, where the policy that they that they were floating out was the areas that had the least damage. We'll get to those first and the places that have the most damage. We'll get to those last. If at all, we might just bulldoze all that. Um, that is consistent in the literature that I've read about Katrina in terms of the attitude that many people had. Even at Memorial Hospital, we talked about charity at Memorial Hospital. They had the exact same uh, ideology. The people that are sickest, that need the most help, we'll get to them last. The people that are healthiest, we'll get to them. But that that sort of mentality was operating. And even at Memorial, uh, the book that I read previously, they talked about how it's normally it is the exact opposite. How white people know that generally you go, you get the people that need the most help. That's the way you do things. But for some reason, that seemed to be totally flipped around in how many people functioned during this entire disaster uh, with regards to uh, Katrina and the levee failure. Um, uh, but yeah, this sentence where uh, Joe Conazaro came to the realization 
Uh, these outside experts were correct to categorize neighborhoods based on damage, but they had it upside down. People in the city's hardest hit neighborhoods, the people who most needed help should be the top priority. And that obviously was not done. Uh, let's see other things that stood out. Thought it was really important. St. Bernard Parish. Uh, they did flood, massive flooding. They had video. They had water that was at 28 feet in some places. They did not restrict people from being able to come back and look at their property. Predominantly white area, St. Bernard's Parish. I'm sure we'll get more information on that as we go. I think the Ninth Ward being last to get electricity. We talked about that uh, when we had a June Cross on the program last week. She was talking about the Guthridge family, uh, and he complained about that the whole time. He's trying to repair his uh, residence and no electricity. No running water. Jimmy Reese, white folks that are in Lakeview, first group to get their power back. System of re- And again, same thing. People that need the most help don't get the most help. It's the white people who are the ones who are least impacted. They get immediate assistance. That is the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, that In the book right there, uh, Greta Gladney, the lower ninth seemed last on everyone's list for everything. Um, even when they open the ninth ward back up, Willie Calhoun goes in national guardsmen there checking ID. Again, this is a military operation. Uh, he noticed when he goes in, uh, the FEMA officials that are doing the cleanup, they have done nothing in the ninth ward. They're working on other areas, white areas. Uh, let's see. We already touched on the Latino workers, uh, that even two months after Katrina armed soldiers were still posted at the bridges leading into the lower ninth ward. Even that, in my opinion, that's another form of psychological terrorism, intimidating black people. I think there were, there was a lot of commentary where black people were talking about, uh, discourteous behavior from enforcement officers, national guardsmen, armed white people, period, uh, that were in Louisiana and other areas during this period, that's just another form of making you feel unsafe and unwelcome as a black person. And in my opinion, just adding to the trauma of all of this. Um, let's see, I guess my, my last Boise, uh, Bollinger, that's the person you all were talking about who had the uh, alligator boots on and wanted people to work. I thought that another great illustration of the white world view we don't want these lazy niggers who might have just saved their lives coming out of this toxic sludge. We don't want them sitting around collecting a check. Let those lazy niggers get out and work. Uh, I thought that was an incredible uh, commentary where he says he's blaming FEMA. What incentive did potential employees have? He wanted to know when they were living on FEMA's dime. Bollinger even argued the point with George Bush. I told the president, I think you're empowering people to stay where they are. Bollinger said... He said he wasn't sure a $2,000 check meant someone was living it up. Uh, I just go back and reference again. I think his mom did say that black people were living it up uh, in the Reliance Center in Houston, that these were just poor niggas anyway. And, you know, this has worked out really well for them. They are moving up the social ladder because of this. I think she did uh, suggest that we were living it up. Uh, I'll stop there. If other folks had commentary, we should have time. Feel free to chime in if you have uh, anything else you want to comment on. assume folks are satisfied we're uh, almost at the close so that's fine too because we almost did our three hours but nobody else had uh, other comments
Yes, Gus, if I may. Mm-hmm. Also, what what I was thinking of with the person, the, the house person that this um he kept mentioning in this book, I think it also wants to show that the servility in black people that we are like animals. We don't think about ourselves. We put other people's needs before us. We are not human because if we could neglect ourselves within which to save other people's property, then we are lower than animals uh, because that is the feeling that you're being, that's being conveyed in this passage where he is making reference to this person because in all human life form is preservation of your species. And you would want to seek to protect yourself. Now, it's, no, it's not as if the man was in the house with you, that your property that you were saving. He's thousands of miles away. So it would seem to me that you would abandon ship because I know me personally, the minute I see water start coming, I'm not, I don't even have to call you and tell you anything because you already knew what it was while you took flight and you went off to Utah wherever you went. I am getting myself together, and I'm getting on the first thing moving. I'm getting the heck on up out of here. That's what I would have done. I would even call him and let him know. He would have called the house, and he would have got a recording, and he would have known that I wasn't there. But this is the, this is the, this is the mentality, and then any time when I hear that phrase, urban renewal or herbal planning, you need to think about Negro removal because that's exactly what it is. Anytime you hear those terms, it's a means of removing all of the Negroes out of that area where they use these terms and these, by calling it urban planning and um, urban renewal. Because this whole idea was to empty the city of New Orleans and get rid of the black population and get it as gentrified as possible. That's what this whole idea was about with this, um, with, with this situation. And once again, we all have white people and their things. They're the collector of things, including people and bones, as we can see in our history, where they would terrorize us and, and murder us and kill us, and they collect body parts for souvenirs. And this is the same thing with them. They have no humanity. They don't concern about nothing, life, nothing. Everything for them is a profit. It's about things. It's about property. That's all their main focus is on. I'll stop here. Uh, right on. Uh, we have about two minutes left. Uh, if anybody had anything else they wanted to get in, uh, listeners or whatever, if you already are on the line or if you're listening in. Uh, but yeah, I will, I'll keep that in mind as we're rolling. If I had known Curtis was going to be a recurring character in the book, I probably would have pitched that question sooner. So we could have thought about it and, you know, had that in mind already, but, uh, I'll keep that, keep that in mind as we go. And if folks have other thoughts, you can, uh, you can add to it as we continue reading through the book. Again, we, we have about uh, half of the text to go, probably another month before we get to the end of the book. Um, check really quick just to um, make sure if there's any anything else. I want to make sure. Looks like I'm probably satisfied. <laughs> I probably can uh, wait anything else I have to get in for next week. Again, we should be back tomorrow for the compensatory call-in. That'll be at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out uh, how to manage uh, if we'll be able to have uh, Leo Muhammad on. Uh, black male, he resides in the U.K., but he uh, is making his sojourn to the States to participate in the Justice 
or else gathering in Washington, D.C. Uh, tomorrow. Uh, he will be uh, in D.C., <laughs> he said, uh, and he said he would be down to <clears throat> give us a report. Uh, on the day's events, what he saw, what he thought about things, answer some questions and what have you. Uh, so I'm just trying to uh, work that out. He even uh, volunteered that he'd be down to come on and do this tomorrow, um, I guess after the festivities uh, wrap in D.C. Just trying to uh, figure out how to manage that with the compensatory call in tomorrow. If it's not feasible, we'll just have him on later uh, in the week. But if it is, uh, we'll hear from him tomorrow, too. Really uh, looking forward to that. But the compensatory call in either way will be tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And then we should have a white man on the program this coming Sunday. Uh, if you have uh, feedback, commentary, questions about the book, even if you don't participate live, uh, you can drop an email until justice at gmail.com and we'll read them uh, on the air. We have a ways to go in the book. So if you submit it, we'll just share it next week. Uh, again, I hope folks are getting constructive information, learning something, uh, just a lot of important information uh, that I didn't know. And, you know, I think uh, really makes it clear uh, with regards to racism, white supremacy, and uh, in my view, the strategic campaign that white people waged uh, really all the way back from August 29 all the way up to right now uh, what's taking place in new orleans that's it thanks everyone for tuning in and contributing i hope it was a constructive investment of your friday evening and we will talk to you in about 24 hours uh, again remain codified sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism you do not want to be around intoxicated white people even be mindful about being around intoxicated non-white people definitely no alcohol if you're going to be uh, driving even be uh, careful if you're going to be a passenger or even a pedestrian. Race soldiers are constant. You heard about uh, the Baton Rouge incident. Uh, enforcement officers, I would say just white people, period, even civilians. They are constantly on the lookout to make problems for us. Just want to try and do everything we can to, number one, be cognizant that we are in a dangerous predicament in the system of white supremacy. We want to be lucid. where We can make the best possible decisions at all times, particularly when you are out in public. Uh, also, and in that same vein, if you are going to drive, just buckle your seatbelt. That's a really, really easy one. Well, we just want to do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. Uh, I know too many non-white people who don't buckle up and they get all these unnecessary tickets. They have to waste money, go to court. You're being stopped by an enforcement officer. We all know that can easily spiral out of control. Just buckle your seatbelt. Very easy counter-racist strategy if you're going to be behind the wheel. That said, invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot dot com. Listener supported counter racist radio. Uh, PayPal is in the top right corner. If you're not in the PayPal, drop an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested down through the years. Hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with 
another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>